For Helsinki, I need someone with diplomatic skills. You don't have them. Is that right? That is right. And I don't know why the hell I didn't fire you when you broke my fucking window. Oh, yes, sure you do, Cravely. Look, Gus. Yeah, you're fucking Roger's fiance, and you know I know. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. Yeah, yeah, you're dignifying her in the ass at the Jefferson Hotel, room 1210. But let me ask you, the 3,000 agents, Turner, fire. Was that because they lacked diplomatic skills as well? You're referring to Admiral Stansfield Turner? Yeah, the 3,000 agents, each and every goddamn one of them, first or second generation Americans. Was that because they lacked the proper diplomatic skills? Or did Turner not think it was a good idea to have spies who could speak the same language as the people they're fucking spying on? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. But you can hardly blame the director for questioning the loyalty to America of people that are just barely Americans in the first place. Yeah, well, I'd like to take a moment to review the several ways in which you're a douchebag. Get the fuck out of my office. Yes, sir. Before I end your career, asshole. Yes, sir. Yeah, my friend, I'm going to need you for a second. God damn it! My loyalty? For 24 years, people have been trying to kill me. People know how. Now, do you think that's because my dad was a Greek soda pop maker? Or do you think that's because I'm an American spy? Go fuck yourself, you fucking child. Welcome, everybody, to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapole. Yeah. I'm very excited. Because we have a great guest, don't we, Patrick? And he's actually in your apartment, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to introduce him. He's been creeping me out the whole time he's been here. Well, that is my M.O. Mm-hmm. I like those glasses you're wearing, Patrick. Yeah, it's been that all fucking night. I like that shirt. Yeah. You have a Crispin Glover quality to your voice. <laughs> you think so? Well, I was side-kicking people, or kicking people to the head as I was walking down Division to get here. Yeah, but and you were holding the rat. Oh, he's got the rat. Mm-hmm. Anyway. He's at the music box the other day. Crispin Glover. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not on board the Crispin Glover train. A lot of people there. Oh, Crispin Glover, wacky artist guy. I don't. I'm. I don't, I'm not buying it. I think you know what I think it is. I think probably the fact that he is the single worst part of my single least favorite David Lynch movie makes like that ruined him for me. You know, like I'm a. I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Back to the Future. I'm a big fan of uh, you know Friday Thirteenth Final Chapter, River's Edge. I haven't seen River's Edge. That was a cool segue, Patrick. If you think about it, because you remember the last time that uh, our guest joined us. Oh, that's right. We were introducing a guest. Hi, Nat. Hey, how you guys doing? It's cool <laughs> to be here. Yeah, I was here for the David Lynch, but I don't think we actually. We didn't cover too much Crispin Glover in that. But, no, uh, I hate that scene. Uh, that scene to me is emblematic of everything people, like everything I hate about that movie that people, like people, oh, wild at heart. It's so wacky and funny and it's just irritating to me. And that scene is, like you can't fucking pretend that scene is anything other than just dumb shit that's happening. That's like, oh, wouldn't it be fine? Well, cockroaches in his underpants. Like that's all of David Lynch's worst like tendencies, I think. Like that's dumb land, David Lynch, <laughs> right there. Well, how do you feel about Willem Dafoe? Well, I don't like. I mean, that. at least that scene has something. Like it's fucking gross and creepy, and I don't at all enjoy it. But at least it's effective, um, you know, in doing it something other than irritating me. But uh, God, I hate that movie so much. We don't have to talk about Wild at Heart. <laughs> We're here though, to talk about good movies. Though here, though it's. 
we're we're talking about Otto Preminger this episode, and that's right. Um, I think among probably the hundreds of directors he's influenced, David. Like when I saw Laura for the first time, I thought of Laura Palmer. No, (laughs) (laughs) I thought of I thought of uh, Blue Velvet. Oh yeah, yeah 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 totally. Um, Otto Preminger is who we're covering. Yeah. Another director I can't wait to do a sequel episode to. Yeah. Because he's got so many other films that I'm dying to see. Right. Well, I mean, it's, like I said, all those old Hollywood directors, they just made movie after movie after movie. And his movies were successful, so he kind of, he got the keys, <laughs> he got the keys to the to the bank vault. That's a, that's a metaphor, right? People say that. We're going to be talking them. about Laura and Daisy Kenyon, mm-hmm. and along with some courtroom dramas as well later yeah. in the show, which I can't wait, really. But um, it is with a very heavy heart that we begin today's episode with the loss of one of my all-time favorite actors, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. To be fair, we didn't really start the episode with a heavy heart, we started kind of lighthearted, I would say. I'd say so. Medium, medium heart, maybe. Me, we, me, this is this is this is somewhere in the transition where the Grinch heart grows five times its size. We're we're right now we're like two times its size. It's kind of like sautéing in the pan a little bit, so the edges of it are brown. Mm, but yes, yeah, it's a lot like that. We're we're caramelizing the onion of our hearts. <laughs> I decided to open the episode with a uh, scene, a very memorable introduction to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Charlie Wilson's War, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite things that he's ever done. Yeah, that that movie isn't necessarily the greatest, but he him in that movie is fucking amazing. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman in Charlie Wilson's War. He just it is yeah, it's one of those performances where the movie's sort of going along and it's it's all right, it's fine movie, and then that's where. That's where it finally kicks into high gear is that Brava kind of scene where that where they're just jumping back and forth between like it feels more uh, like March Brothers <laughs> routine than it does exposition involving two government officials. It's just like, yeah, somebody walks in and just completely owns a movie mm-hmm. and you're immediately like this just this movie became so much more interesting and I just want to follow this guy instead of Charlie Wilson. God, he did that a lot, though, like. Like even in movies where everyone is good, um, uh, I, I was even thinking like, like talented Mr. Ripley. I was thinking the same. Yeah, like the piano thing where he's like doing the two fingers on the mm-hmm. keys, flipping around. Yeah, got he. Yeah, his introduction in uh, in talented Mr. Ripley, which I only saw for the first time this year. I think it's still on Netflix. So if you haven't seen this movie because you thought it was just some bullshit. Uh, like Miramax kind of indie bullshit that I that's which is what I thought about it. That would be so good. You should have listened to me when I reviewed it on the Cone Brothers episode. I love, did you? I love that movie. Yeah. Oh wow! In one ear, out the other. When I made people laugh, when uh, either Russ or Matt asked, um, "So what's Anthony Minghella been up to lately?" I'm like, I don't know. I think he's dead. Yeah, that's probably why he hasn't come out with any new movies lately. Certainly, yeah. Uh, but, we uh, can only I mean, hope. I, Speaking of, oh, look! This is how I deal with pain. Their humor. I deflect it. 
I know. I, I don't let it get inside me. I don't admit the reality. It sucks. He I think I first had so many amazing performances to give. Yeah, I think I first saw him in uh, another not so great movie, but he's great in it. Scent of a Woman. That was one of his earliest roles. Yeah, and uh, that's also the the role that caught the attention of Paul Thomas Anderson. Like he's like, yeah, the movie was good, but holy shit, I want to work with that guy. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you know that built a incredible relationship through three. Incredible performances from from Phil, man, and uh, he had he had like this little indie trifecta with um, kind of movies that are about addiction. Um, Love Liza, Owning Mahoney. Um, I think there was one more. <laughs> I shouldn't use the word trifecta unless I have it backed up. But um, yeah, I. The, the you know there was that period of time where you know he wasn't necessarily like uh, a mainstream name, and he certainly you know hadn't reached the sort of acclaimed status or winning the awards that he should have had. But you know he was always reliable in everything, no matter what it was. Hey, but what's it? He never really did cash out the way a lot of indie actors do. Um, like he had his you know. Big showy Oscar performance, yeah. But like, like, because like, I, I, when I was leaving work today, I told some. I had just, you know, recently found out that he, he died, and I told someone that Philip Seymour Hoffman died, and they're like, "Are you going to be mad at me that I don't know who that is?" And then when I was trying to describe movies he was in, I was, I realized there aren't any like big Hollywood movies really. Like Mission Impossible Three is not a popular. You know, movie. Mm, yeah. And he doesn't, and he didn't really cash out in that. Like, <laughs> he did, gave an interesting performance in that. It's not, that wasn't, he didn't, he never sleepwalked or anything. But, no, like, even, even, you know, even being 46 years old, even being in the industry so long, he never really did that thing where he just started, you know, he was in what? He was the best friend, and along came Polly, and that's about it. Like, well, I think, I think Capote was probably. The one that most mainstream, or like the closest you would get to a mainstream audience, recognizing him. But even still, that's like ten years ago or so, and I don't know how many people would actually or have actually seen that. Did he win the Oscar for that? I believe he did. It was between uh, him and Joaquin Phoenix for Walk the Line that year. But you know, like like a lot of like okay, like Kevin Spacey, like Kevin Spacey for a while there at like around American Beauty, he was just Mister big Hollywood Oscar bait. You know, there was a, there's a lot of actors who in Philip Seymour Hoffman's position sort of cash out um, and continue to chase that sort of stuff. And he doesn't, he didn't, you know, he continued to act in theater and he's uh, continued to make small, weird movies and play unlikable, interesting characters. And, you know, really good, really good actor. (laughs) I can't think of like one performance of his that I never, that I didn't like, or that I thought wasn't, he wasn't at least doing something interesting. I don't think he's interesting in Patch Adams. I don't I think seen I mean, Patch Adams. Yeah, yeah. That just you know, that's probably it, though. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too because uh, you know I, I wrote on the Facebook page one of the best memories that I'll ever have, one of the best movie-going experiences that I had with you involved his directorial debut, and you know his Q and A was so incredibly fun <laughs> and i'm pretty sure it's out there if you want to look it up on youtube the philip seymour hoffman music box q a 
you can uh, relive that experience, Patrick. It's kind of neat. Really? So that means I'm on there because I asked a question. Um, I think they cut out the people and they just like put text of what the question was and him answering it. That's fine. My question's still there. I asked him about, I asked him because it was based on a, because Jacko's voting was based on a uh, play. And I asked, and there are a couple scene transitions that were very visual. And I asked him at what point, like, I don't know, remember what I asked him. It was probably dumb. I was dumb back then, but I'm just saying, I'm saying I asked him a question. And I talked to him, he talked back. So there you go. And it's interesting how, you know, you brought up that movie during our best of 2013 episode. And just a couple days ago, we recorded a bonus episode that'll be up probably within the week or so where I talk about how I'm excited for the new um, Anton Corbin movie in which he's the lead. Mm-hmm. So it'll be uh, bittersweet. I mean, seeing him, you know, but it's good. I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to see the movie, but I'm going to be obviously very sad, much like uh, seeing James Gandolfini and enough said, I was kind of like, Oh man, I, I just, I want to see more work for years and years to come. And it's really, really sad that we won't. But thank yeah. God for the incredible legacy that he's left behind. Yeah, and, um, you know, if you want to pay tribute to him or whatever, you should think about maybe, you know, giving a donation to a local, like, nonprofit uh, drug, like, rehab, rehabilitation center, yeah. or drug treatment program. Um, because, you yeah. know, fucking heroin is horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he couldn't have had a happy end and it was really and it's really sad that that i believe it it was heroin um that he was addicted to that um, he was sober for 23 years and he just relapsed fairly fairly recently Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's really horrible so you know maybe think about uh donating uh to a yeah a local nonprofit uh drug treatment program in his honor yeah I'm probably going to drink and watch the next to New York tonight. Mm, I'm sober right now, actually, because uh, me, me and my partner drink a lot. So every once in a while we say, hey, we should probably take a week off just to make sure we're not alcoholics. Um, day two, pick the wrong week to stop drinking because I make pizzas during the Super Bowl. So looks like I picked the wrong day to quit drinking. Exactly. Uh but I, but uh, according as per our rules, I can still sniff glue, so we're all good. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Or you can huff gasoline in honor of uh, Love Liza, Philip Seymour Hoffman's incredible film. I haven't mostly seen that. mostly for his performance rather than the actual movie, but yeah. Or you can bang the Marissa Tomei in honor of <laughs> Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah. If we're going to be honest, I'm probably just going to stand by a pool and long after a hot dude. That's probably how I'm going to honor Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm just going to call someone you get- randomly in the phone book and jerk <laughs> off. Okay. Well, we all have our ways of – we all have our different kinds of grief, um, I think Good is the grief. message here. I'm going to form a cult. Cool. Mm. That's all I got. Yeah, sorry. No, it's good. We're all good. We're all good. I'm gonna. <laughs> you get you get Amy Adams out of that deal. That's so. true. I could stare in the mirror while. Anyway. Yep. Do we have any other business, Jim? No. No business. Yeah. Mm-mm. Do you want to talk about what we watched this week? 
You want to talk about movies you walked, watched in January and possibly February? Let's change the name of the segment to What We Watched in January. Let's no. do that. No, let's not. Let's 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 keep it real. Nat, you're the guest. Do you want to go first? Well, I don't know if I should bring this one up, but we did have a screening for that awkward moment. So I don't know too much. Sorry. I just went, uh, yeah. What's yeah. wrong with that awkward moment? What? I'm not aware of this movie. I wasn't aware of it either, but it's a, uh, it's a rom-com with Zac Efron and uh, a bunch of other actors who you probably would recognize from other things, but I uh, probably couldn't name them. Uh, yeah. Miles Teller, Michael B. Jordan, whom I actually like quite a bit. Okay. Um, so it has three good actors. So what's the- <laughs> I don't know if I would classify Zac Efron as a good actor. He's fine. Well, okay. He doesn't get to showcase his talents in this, I'll say. But it's pretty much standard romantic comedy. Uh, I don't know. It's weird because if you've ever been to a screening where you kind of hate the movie all throughout and yet the audience is completely lapping up everything, and you feel like, how am I going to write a review because I hate this movie, but everyone else in the audience seemed to really like it? That's kind of how I felt with this. And it just rips off a lot of stuff from superior comedies. For example, they do a direct steal of the, you know, I know you're gay from 40 year old virgin, which to be fair, that's probably not the first time that that's happened. Um, There's like weird moments where the main character, Zach Efron's behavior. I don't really quite understand why it's going on so long. He uh, shows up at his girlfriend's birthday party wearing a long dildo and he didn't realize that it's a fancy dress party. So you would think that if that happened to you, the first thing you would do is probably, you know, remove the dildo, but no, he just kind of keeps it on for the entire party. Um, another scene has, uh, he and his friends kind of all in the bathroom while one of them's taking a piss. I'm pretty sure guys normally don't do that, or at least my group of friends never really seen that, but, um, girls do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, of course they do. I mean, they have pillow fights in their bathrooms. and has a couple of her friends over. Sometimes they all go to the bathroom together. I'm like, hmm, what's going on in there? Yeah. Well, that's a girl's pee party. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's pretty bad. Um, yeah. I've... Did you see anything else? <laughs> um, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, a good one. Um I did uh, I did sit my fiance down and we watched The Late Show. I don't know if either of you've seen this or heard of it, but uh I've I've been on Kurt Halfyard's ass for a long time to uh to watch this because I know he likes The Long Goodbye and I know he likes Robert Altman in general and this is kind of in the same vein. It almost was directed by Robert Altman, but instead it's directed by Robert Benton. And written by Robert Benton, starring uh, Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. Do you think that happened via a typo? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> B. Uh, who's the other? Who's the other director? But um, it's it's kind of in that same seventies vein of neo noir, and uh, it's not quite as, uh, I guess, perky or quirky, rather, as a uh, long goodbye. But uh, Art Carney plays a one of the best PIs from the 1940s living in 1970s Los Angeles. And Lily Tomlin 
hires him to track down her cat, and it leads into this mixed-up web of intrigue and murder and blackmail. But at the heart of it is really this wonderful chemistry between Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. Um, And she's uh, sort of hippie. He's old-school, hard-boiled, and they play off each other so well. There's so many good character moments, such great dialogue. It's just, it's an extremely fun, um, endearing movie. And it's not something that's, like, on the same thematic level as, like, The Long Goodbye, but it's such an enjoyable watch uh, that I would highly recommend checking it out if you like anything that uh, that's kind of like a quirky Robert Altman-esque comedy, but directed by Robert Benton. I know I would like it because I love the long. There's, there's, I. Can I say something? You don't like the long goodbye. No, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I love the long goodbye. <laughs> okay. I don't like seventies comedies. Like I was thinking about this, and, and when you were talking about it, and I was looking at the, I was looking at the IMDb listing, and I was, I was thinking. Like, that is a weird decade where most of the comedies weren't funny, I feel. I think well, the in-laws. What would you qualify as being a 70s comedy? Um, a comedy that was released in between 1970 and 1979. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, but, like, MASH. Do you, do you think of that as, like, a comedy or okay, it's kind of a so mix so here's map? the thing. There are movies that are great because they have great artists working on them. Um, but... Like the Mash's script is not full of jokes or anything, and I feel like there's a lot of movies that just sort of hang out. <laughs> like I feel like there's a lot of '70s comedies that are just they don't have many jokes. They're just sort of languid. They just sort of have that Mash good times feeling, but they're never they're not funny. Um, hmm. I don't like like I like the Jerk is literally the only movie I can think of from the seventies that I think is really, really funny. Can you guys name, name some really funny movies from the seventies? Cause uh, bananas sleeper. I'm a big okay, fan. Like, of Woody, not non Woody mm. Allen movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Cause that hmm. you got me thinking. And I think a lot of the ones that a lot of the comedies from the seventies, I do like are kind of genre mashes. So I think you could fit mash in there, but I think this would also fit in there. Cause it's also a detective story. Um, I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. an outright just for laughs comedy. Um, at least this film isn't. It's it's kind of more the dynamic, and there's a lot of funny moments that arise from that. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I can't really think of something that would be an outright '70s style comedy. Like, an like, eight- like I hate Animal House. I hate Blues Brothers. I think those are really like Animal House is the perfect example of what I'm talking about, where that movie just goes on and on, and the main characters are boring, and you don't. And there's not really any jokes. Blazing like, parts- Saddles. What's that? Oh yeah, Blazing, Blazing Saddles, Saddles. Frankenstein. Okay, so again, genre mashups. Mm-hmm. Right. But I would say, yeah, that's a genre mashup. But that's also that's a bit more like straight comedy. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. I'm 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 pulling up a list right now. The cat from outer space. Okay, thank you. The fish that saved Pittsburgh. Um, what? Oh no, never mind. <laughs> I did not put on the comedy filter. We, Real we life. More... Real life came out in '79. So you're so we're just naming auteurs. Like we're just naming really good directors 
again, like I think that may have been the problem in the seventies is that hmm. um, it was auteur driven and not like comedian driven. Cause you think of like movies Richard Pryor made, most of those are really bad. You think of movies. I mean, George Carlin didn't really make many movies. <laughs> All right, let's see here. Um, so straight comedies that I like um, in the seventies uh, that aren't Woody Allen movies. Um, I guess life of Brian Oh yeah. It's 1979. Uh, Holy Grail 74. Holy Grail. So again, auteur driven. Hmm. Um, auteur but directed by two people. I guess so. Yeah, they're but again, it's more of a But that but that's also comedy or performer based too. No, okay, you're right. So Monty Python doesn't qualify as that's what I'm talking about. Um, The Jerk, Real Life, Young Frankenstein. I guess the Muppet movie, like, <laughs> I don't know. There's Kentucky something Fried about, movie. there's something about seventies comedies that I find really unappealing. Hmm. Well, what are some other seventies comedies that you don't like? Okay. I can go through that. Uh, I don't like animal house. I don't like, um, yeah, like I said, I don't like blues brothers. The seventies, right? I think 80, but close yeah, enough. It is. 80. Okay. I don't like meatballs. I don't like, uh, you like him in spaghetti at least, though. Thank you, Jim. Uh, I don't like. Well, being there is one of those comedies that's not really a comedy. Um. Hmm. I don't know. I'm right now. I'm on a list of my. I'm on my Critiker profile, but I haven't updated that in so long. The Heartbreak Kid. That's a good one. Shampoo, like yeah, like okay, so yeah, that's the sort of thing. Like shampoo, um, is a comedy that's not funny at all. (laughs) Okay, so I think this all goes back to the this all goes back to one of the first things I ever did as a cinephile, or I wasn't even a cinephile back then. But the first thing I ever got interested in classic film was when AFI did hundred funniest movies, and like pretty consistently, the movies they picked from the seventies as quote unquote classics were not funny at all. Like, didn't hmm. have jokes. <laughs> like, there was, again, there's The Jerk. I don't even think they picked many Woody Allen movies. I don't think they did Real Life. I I think they would, yeah, like, pick Shampoo and, um, like, Harold and Maude, which is a yeah. great movie, but it's not funny. So those things... Dark comedy, maybe. I don't know. The AFI, it always has to have, like, some sweeping... Giant message no, no, I'm not overshadowing. Saying, I'm not saying any of those lists are great institutions. I'm just saying, I readers, if you love seventies, think they have seventy comedies that are funny. You should send them to me. But when you compare it to comedies from the eighties or comedies from the sixties or comedies from the forties, or like maybe it's too that like you know a lot of us grew up in the eighties, so we have a kind of nostalgia for that. Yeah, as I well grew as up the, in the nineties, and I don't comedy in the nineties is real bad. <laughs> So I have no nostalgia for Adam Sandler and Mike Myers. Um, I can understand Adam Sandler, but come on, Mike Myers. He's no he's no good. He's an mm. unfunny person. Wayne's World's a horrible movie. Wayne's World is another movie where there's like there's no jokes. Austin Powers you're gonna rag against? Nah, nah. Austin Powers I'm not is, a fan. the first Austin Powers is okay. But he is he does okay, so he does the like the the thing that is the worst part of any Mel Brooks movie where Mel Brooks has to like look at the camera and go, I'm saying a joke. 
and or like just the really super broad stuff where he then explains the joke he just made. Like that happened more in his later. The seventies were full of broad comedies. Like what? Uh, man. I mean, like you mentioned, Animal House, but uh, I think I'm trying to think. Um, Slapshot was kind of a broad comedy. Slapshot was a dark, like Shepshot again. Slapshot's a character-driven story. Pink that Panther, is kind of funny because it because how gruff the characters are, but it's all character-driven. It's not yeah. It's the, it's, it does no jokes. Like that's what that's what's crazy about Woody Allen. Like Woody Allen's the only Woody Allen and Mel Brooks were the only one in the seventies who fucking wrote jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and they had great they had great comedies in the seventies though. Yeah. Uh, oh, for sure. Just, there's no other. I don't, so you're saying there's no other person like that in the seventies? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's like some other British group or something that would qualify in that. Hmm. But, other, you mean Monty Python? Monty Python. Um, I don't know. I probably not the Carry On group, but uh, I, I, I again, I, I can think of like Richard Lester. I think the seventies were so. Maybe the seventies were so auteur driven. And I'm sorry to completely change the subject. No, the this is really interesting, though. Yeah, yeah it, is. It, it gets me thinking. And but like, I, I think maybe that the period of time was just so auteur-driven that everything had to be mash. Everything had to be um, had be kind of bittersweet and have poignancy and stuff. And that often was a substitute for jokes. I don't know. Maybe if I went back and I watched Shampoo now, I wouldn't hate it. But like, yeah, Shampoo is just a movie that is really dull and like what qualifies for humor is like the counterculture thumbing its nose at, but no actual like jokes <laughs> <laughs> like the eighties full of comedies with jokes. Nineties had ton of comedies with jokes, sixties, tons of jokes, you know, going backwards, tons of jokes, but somewhere in the seventies, like someone decided that all comedies had to have some darkness to them and, all and 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 some you know some countercultural character and blame Vietnam, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, the death of idealism at that time. You know the the Altamont incident created all that. Everybody just stopped laughing. Are you telling me Giving Shelter isn't a comedy? <laughs> I don't think so. No, well, I find I happen to find hate crimes hilarious, so mm. that's why that movie to me is a comedy. But yeah, like yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it was just people were it was it was too dark a time, um, and people were rejecting sort of. There, maybe part of the rejection of old Hollywood was the rejection of Jerry Lewis, <laughs> you know, and the, and that kind of film. Um, sure. But like a lot of the directors that you think of as coming out of the seventies were the ones who were trying to reignite or were calling back to old Hollywood too, like Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola. Uh, but I mean, well, that's later part of that's that's the distinct like. So I mean, the, Spielberg, <laughs> like the new the quote unquote new Hollywood thing that maybe started with Bonnie and Clyde, maybe started with Graduate, maybe started with Mash or whatever, like. Um, that by the time Jaws came out, that was the sea change, and then that all started to crumble. Ha! Sea um, change. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Ocean change. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's something, in, but there, I think I think maybe, and this could be just a totally it likely is just a totally bullshit thing that I carry from 
being uh being like a 15 year old watching movies from the 70s on that AFI 100 funniest list but like I'm inherently um mis- uh, I uh, I inherently do not trust 70s comedies to deliver as comedies um yeah I just I always suspect they're going to be shampoo and uh, like some of like I love Harold and Maude I love the last detail but they're not particularly funny movies yeah they're they have fun performances, but there's a difference between uh, a Woody Allen movie and a f- and a Jack and a compelling Jack Nicholson performance. Mm. Um, hmm. Well, again, um, which oh, so what are, the, what, the Late Show does fit into the category that you like. It's it's more in the Harold and Maude last detail uh, category okay. than the Mel Brooks. Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. So it's a good movie, but it's not necessarily hilarious. And it's, yeah, I mean, a lot of the comedy, a lot of the, um, I don't know, kind of heartwarmingness of it or tenderness of it does come from the dynamic of the characters. Um, and it's just, it's Lily Tomlin. So I think one of you has expressed deep love of her, of Lily Tomlin before. So Yeah, I like Lily Tomlin a lot. Yeah. What's the... Steve Martin movie was that eight was that seventies or eighties? All of me. All of me. Probably eighties. Early. That's 80s. probably eighties. Yeah. yeah. Really funny yeah. stuff. But it has that it has long goodbye kind of vibe. It's produced by Altman. Yeah. Hmm. I it's, still gotta watch it. This is so. This is this isn't Clute. <laughs> no. I still have to watch. I haven't. I still, Lily Tomlin doesn't get topless in it. I so. still haven't seen Clute, so I don't get that reference. Oh, does Clute get topless? Is there a character <laughs> named Clute? In Clute? <laughs> well, Dallas Sutherland gets topless all the time, but uh, but Jane Fonda not. gets. More importantly, is his character's name Clute? Yeah, I have to watch the movie. Oh, <laughs> oh God. man, that's how they hook you. I like how you're sitting in front of a computer which you've already used to look up seventies comedies, yeah. and yet not going to see. I'm afraid that if I go to IMDb right now and I look up Clute, the first credited cast member is going to be Donald Sutherland, but his character's name won't simply be Clute. It'll be like Calvin Lute. Yeah, or no, it'll be like Detective Robert Simmons or whatever. (laughs) Detective Richard Simmons. Detective Gene Simmons. I don't know what Clute's about. It's not a comedy. Yeah. It's it's been a long time since I've seen it. I think the yeah. last time I saw it I was on an airplane. But it's uh I think Jane Fonda is a prostitute and she has some death threat and Donald Sutherland uh is the guy who's trying to save her from that. Hmm. And that's probably as about as descriptive as I can get um in it. Is the killer's name Clute? No, I, Donald Sutherland is Clue. He's Clue? I'm pretty sure he's Clue. Do people just call him Clue? Yes, they call him Clue. Oh, okay. I'm on board with this movie. <laughs> what was the movie you saw? What was the movie you saw this week? Clue? Okay, sounds good. <laughs> it sounds like a filthy Swedish word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it sounds, or it sounds like, uh, yeah, some other country's uh, beloved cartoon character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? Everyone in Australia loves Clute, the koala with the heart of gold. Yeah, or it's going to turn out to be, like, something horribly racist. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think you should just do a double feature. Don't of look Clute now. and the late show? Don't look now. It's Clute. So that way you can go, don't look now, it's Clute. 
you know, combine <laughs> the two. <laughs> It'd be like, an amazing yeah, sex scene. I should watch Clute, Das Boot, um, and Clue. Sarah Goot. <laughs> what is that? I surrogates with uh, I don't know. Okay, so I'll watch the Swedish subtitled version of surrogate. Yes, or loot the right one in. Jim, what did you watch this week? I don't know. I forgot. I was thinking too much about Clute. Mmm. <laughs> you know this is nonsense. This is all getting deleted. No, 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 no. This is what people live for. Like they they wait on bated breath every week for this kind of nonsense. Well, I'm just hoping I got a lot of details of the plot wrong because the image of a bunch of our audience screaming at their pod, like their iPods, it's not that, goddammit, Clute. You the killer is named Clute. It's a killer koala bear. <laughs> if only. That'd be adorable. Right? Okay, I want to talk sorry. about a horror film in, involving a killer groundhog. It's called Groundhog Day. I don't know if anybody has seen it, but uh, every February 2nd, I decide it's time to indulge in one of my all-time favorite movies. And I really haven't seen much else of note um, other than a movie that we talked about on my bonus episode called Trouble. John Clute! Oh, that's better than This is now the Clute cast. (laughs) I'm sorry. Nat just held up his phone. He looked up the Wikipedia entry. He showed me the cast listing. His name is John Clute. Oh, man. So, Jim, you have to do a remix of the Shaft theme and insert clue yeah. for Shaft. Yeah. Okay. Who's the grumpy? <laughs> Who's the Canadian dick? man? Make that your What We Watch This Week song, Patrick. I won't. I already oh. have one. Okay. Is Clute um, involved at all? you got to redo it now. How many times have you seen Groundhog Day, Jim? Once a year since it's come out. Really? Yeah. So much I love it. Nat, do you have movies that you watch every year? Yes. What movies? They're generally seasonal movies, so every year around Christmas, I will watch the George C. Scott Christmas Carol. Okay. Um, and usually Babes in Toyland. Also, for Halloween, I'll at least try to watch the Disney Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm. Um, yeah, that's generally about it. I don't. I don't want to interrupt you, Jim. As, yes, you do. As I, as I want. Yes, as I want <laughs> to do on this show to just interrupt you. But did you? So you. But I guess my point is, you've seen this once a year since yeah. 1992 or 1993. And I still get choked up when he's confessing how he feels to Andy McDowell when they're lying together. Every time, like I just think it's an amazing feat because I even think up until that point. I'd never seen Bill Murray do anything remote, remotely dramatic. Like, that was, you know, and obviously we can heap praise on because of Wes Anderson's movies and uh, Lost in Translation, but to me, that was the turning point. That was, like, the magic trick that, like, made me love Bill Murray even more. Um, because, you know, obviously it's easy to buy him as, you know, this self-centered um, meteorologist who only cares about himself, but... We have to buy his transformation and his desire to change. And this movie celebrates selflessness in such a fun, funny way. And, you know, it has that Twilight Zone plot going on without ever explaining it. And I kind of love that. I mean, if, you know, if you like Pleasantville, Don Knotts would show up and be like, hey, guess what? 
you're trapped in the same day. So I'm kind of glad it doesn't have that. I'm, I just love that it just happens, and he has to adapt to it. And he try, and he goes through depression. He goes through, uh, you know, embracing it wholeheartedly and loving it, uh, and then ultimately decides he wants to be a part of the community and, and be a part of the outside world instead of just stuck in his own head. And I don't know, like every time I see it every year, I just, I kind of appreciate it more emotionally. And also just Harold Ramis has never made a movie that's kind of worked on so many levels before. It's just perfect in every way. And every time I watch it, and I know it's not, everybody's seen it. It's not like one of those movies like you have to go on and on and on about, but I just, every year I get really excited to talk about it with other people because at this point it's a certified classic. I get. I guess my question is: Did you do you get at this point when you've seen a movie so many times? Do you ever get anything new out of it? Um, like what did you get out of new out of it watching it today? Uh, well, I mean, I definitely go through the same cycle of feelings watching it, and a lot of it is nostalgia. Remembering watching this with my dad, his reactions to certain scenes because we saw it as sneak preview like a week before it came out. And I remember as we were walking out, I'm like, Dad, that's going to be a classic someday. I think, you know, having that reaction to it still affects my viewing experience and how, you know, some movies, some, like, you know, something like The Big Lebowski take time to build that sort of reputation. Whereas for me, instantly in my mind when I saw this, I just thought, like, it hit every note right. And, um, you know, I don't know if I necessarily. Sp- like pick up on something new other than like, Oh cool. I actually had never done research to where it was actually filmed for years. I always thought, Oh, it's gotta be filmed in Pennsylvania. It was filmed in Woodstock, Illinois, which I used to drive through all the time when I was working for the bread company. So, I mean, that's kind of (laughs) nice, but yeah, I just, I mean, it's one of those go-to movies every year that, I just I never get tired of watching it, and it's not it's not even something like oh I'm going to clean my room and put it on in the background. I sit down and watch it like I'm watching it for the first time. Yeah, I guess I don't. I mean, I guess uh, judging by listener emails, um, the main theme of this show is that you are a human being who's warm and has emotions, and I'm a cold analytical movie robot. No, who likes to input data. Um, but but I don't have anything like this. Like even I've tried to start traditions where i watch movies every year um and i hate it i find that i just hate it like i can't like i haven't seen annie hall in like four years and that's because i want to continue loving annie hall um it's kind of the same reason i never listened to this show it's it's once you know something so well that it's just memorized it Mm -hmm. kind of feels like a nightmare to me to watch it and to know everything that's gonna happen i mean which is ironic because that is the plot of groundhog's day (laughs) The only thing I have to say about Groundhog's Day is a story that my friend told me where he was at a friend's house and his friend's mom was drunk um, and she was watch- and she put on Groundhog's Day and she thought the DVD player was broken <laughs> 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 because the scenes kept happening and she kept like skipping around trying to figure out what was going on. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't like so when you say like you watch Legend of Sleepy Hollow every year, it's like that's a, so is that a nostalgic? Part of it's nostalgic, but then it's also after seeing it so many times, 
I think you also go back, go back and try to look for something new each time you're watching it too. So, like, yeah, I just really enjoyed it uh, when we were growing up. Like, my family would always watch it at Halloween. So, you know, watching it however many years removed from that, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm going to appreciate the music because Bing Crosby does an awesome job. Now I'm going to look at, like, really pay attention to the animation and, like, how the characters are constructed or this is how they achieve this particular special effect or this um, this is how it's plotted out. And... I never really get bored of it, and maybe that is nostalgia, but I also just really enjoy um, kind of looking for something new in that. So I'm not really that worried about like memorizing a film. Um, we'll talk about Anatomy of a Murder sometime down the road here. Yeah. But like every time I, I watch that, I think of something that I really like to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. I can see, I can definitely see that happening for Anatomy. There are a few films I can see myself watching again and again. Like, I can see myself watching Upstream Color constantly and always getting something new out of it. Yeah, um, that's going to be a yearly watch for me. How many yearly watches do you have? You, I, I feel like you say that a lot. Well, Jim's, yearly- Jim's just waiting to get to 365 so he can have yeah. a movie so to watch every year. So he can quit the year. podcast yes. and he can just have his, his year plotted out. Where he's like, all right, yeah, August 9th, it's time for Ravenous. There's definitely, I think, like, most of my favorite movies, like the ones in my top ten movies of all time, I, I tend to rewatch them once a year. I think. Yeah. Okay, so like you, apartment once a year. Oh, wait, go ahead, give me the top ten. Uh, Paris, Texas, apartment mm-hmm. after hours. Um, mm, I don't watch Fearless once a year. That one's that one's pretty heavy for me to relive over and over again. Like, uh, I had to be in the mood to put myself through that kind of <laughs> emotional. Uh, resonance because of how I relate to that movie so much. Do you watch uh, Back to the Future once a year? Um, I used to. I don't as much anymore. It was more like when I had cable, it was always on. Right. Um, what else do I watch? Probably Punch Drunk with Love. Even though I don't know if that's in my top ten, but I definitely watch that once a year. Mm, uh, I guess I watch Halloween. broadcast news. I, I don't make it a tradition, but I always find myself watching Halloween every year. So, mm-hmm. Lost in America. Um, okay, yeah, that's so yeah. About it. yeah. So, but I don't know. I guess it's. I guess maybe it's possible I ruined this phenomenon for me because when I was a kid, um, I would obsessively watch the same VH, VHS tapes over and over because we didn't have that many, and my parents never took me to the movies, and they never t- they they rarely went to rent movies. Because my parents don't care about movies really at all. Um, yeah, when by I, was the way, a kid, I finally I did this way more. I probably watched yeah. like Ghostbusters once a week or Cloak and Dagger. But see, to me, that's crazy because you had cable and you had the parents who liked movies. Like you had, you had the keys <clears throat> to the kingdom, Jim. You could no. rent all these movies, and I had to watch. And there weren't even good movies that I was watching over and over and over again. I watched what movies did I see a hundred times? I Lost saw the X Files movie. A hundred times. I saw Jurassic Park two, Lost World, Ooh. Independence Day, Men in Black, um, uh, Duck Soup is one I did. Uh, that oh, was a good. good one that I watched a million times in a row. Um, uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That's still a nostalgic favorite. Batman nineteen eighty nine. But like, yeah, like uh, so. I used to do that a lot, and now I find that my arc is like I I see a great movie for the first time, and I get excited, and my first response is. Oh, I need to show this to someone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. Like, 
uh, like last last night, me and you know me and Regina, we watched Anatomy of Murder because I was after seeing Anatomy of the Murder, and again we'll talk about it. I was so puzzled uh, by what my reaction to the movie was. I'm like, I need someone else to watch this. I need, I want to have a discussion with someone. And right now, I can't have. Right now, no one at my job has seen Anatomy of a Murder, so I need to talk about this to someone. Um, and then after that, after seeing it that second time, uh, it sort of cools off, and then maybe I'll watch it. If I really, really love it, I'll watch it again the next year. And then it just sort of drops off. Um, like, hmm. there's sure I'm sure there's some movies that I will never just never watch. Like, I'll never stop watching. Like, I'll never stop returning to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't watch it necessarily once a year, but I definitely will probably always return to it um, every once in a while. Um, Annie Hall stuff like that but like i don't know it's it it can be it, it can be deadly i i can't watch some movies annie hall is is such a hard movie to me for me to watch now i think the last time i saw it was like yeah like 3 4 years ago apparently it's going to be a hard movie for a lot of people to watch lately oh well <laughs> i don't i don't know why this is all news to people yeah i know this isn't new yeah it's, but it's you know it's that everybody's having that separate the art from the artist you know and don't don't you don't judge. even have to do that don't separate the art from the artist don't watch any Woody Allen movies that's fine I think that yeah. should be your choice but like this isn't new news about Woody Allen mm-hmm. like I don't yeah. know well we won't regurgitate it here certainly what do you watch real quick uh not much okay <laughs> I saw. Kansas City Confidential, which is a really, really, really great movie. Uh, hmm. It's a, it's sort of a crime movie where um, I was I was afraid because it was, it was going to turn into sort of a typical Treasure of Sierra Madre or a simple what a simple wish is the movie with Martin Short and, <laughs> and Matilda. What's what's a simple plan? That's uh, Sam Raimi's movie with yeah. Bill Paxton and Billy Bob. Yeah, exactly. A simple, so like that kind of movie where people get money and then they start turning on each other. Yeah. Like that kind of – I was afraid it was going to be very typical, that sort of things because it's about three, four people who all wear masks and only the person who arranged the robbery knows who everyone is. Um, so it's even a more extreme version of like Reservoir Dogs because they don't know each other's names or their faces. Um, but um, – so, but it's only like 15 minutes into the movie that the main character actually shows up, which is the floor, the floral uh, delivery man um, that they frame. Um, hmm. And so the whole movie is about him trying to get back at them, uh, trying to figure out what happened and trying to uh, sort of get his vengeance um, for like he got fired from his job and everyone stares at him because he was a big suspect and his face is in the paper and everything. And... Um, so it's all about sort of his revenge story and it's about him pretending to be someone. And there's, so there's all these layers of lies and stuff that he's working and it's really, really intense. And it, it's one of those movies is just the, the screw just keeps tightening and really great movie. Uh, it has a great, it all takes place. Most of it, uh, like this whole second half of it takes place in sort of a, a, a small Mexican town where they're hiding out. So there's like this sweltering heat angle. So everyone, in addition to being super paranoid and suspicious and he's close to getting caught the whole time, like everyone's all sweaty and it's a really uh, great visual. Um, That's a really great location. And it has um, a really early performance from 
the bad from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef. Yeah, has a really early Lee Van Cleef performance, like when he was young and looked really weird. Like he looks like a sweaty ventriloquist dummy <laughs> for most for most of the movie because he has a crazy little bow tie and he has this little smile the whole time. It's really crazy. Ooh. But um, I don't know. So that's real good. I saw Video Violence one and two, continuing my obsession with shot on VHS horror films, which they're not good. It's a good premise. It's a horror film in which this guy uh, move. He used to own a movie theater in New York. He moves to a small town, open a video store, and instantly every single person in the town becomes a member. At a time where VCRs were not something that everyone had, um, and he finds that confusing. And then one day he gets a tape returned um, that was not uh, that was not one of his tapes, and it turns out that it's a snuff film that oh, one of the shit. people in the town made. And then he finds out that. The whole town, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really ludicrous premise, but it's a pretty fun one, that the whole town is just a town of bloodthirsty murderers, and all they, all they do is get visitors and people from the outside, and they torture and kill them on, on videotape. Um, and it's sort of a fun little satire of the fears of, oh, slasher movies, and people are renting such violent videos, and like that whole thing in the 80s. Um, and it's it's sort of very playful, and the fact that it itself is shot on VHS is another sort of interesting uh, formal angle to it. But it's also just a bad movie. Like the plotting is really bad, the performances are bad, the it's really slow paced. The main character is really really like it's ostensibly a mystery, but he like most scenes are are of him sitting in his kitchen with his wife, going, "I just don't know what's going on." <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it. And then Video Violence 2 is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life, um, which is – it's a – it's basically a 70-minute long version of America's Funniest Home Videos, <laughs> except instead of instead of being uh, like videos of bloopers and guys getting hit in the nuts, it's snuff films. So the the premise is you're watching a news broadcast and then a pirate radio broad a pirate television broadcast takes over it like the um sort of the uh, what was that guy in the 80s that happened with um mm. he mm. was in Back to the Future 2 in the 80s cafe oh Max Headroom yeah Max oh, Headroom yeah. so have you ever seen that the footage of a local oh, yeah, yeah, station yeah. that got yeah. so it's, that's what happens but and but it's so that whole movie has no plot. It's just like a quote unquote comedy with all these vignettes of people getting murdered. So is it kind of like a faces at death? Uh, except, except that it's like comedy sketches. Amazon and, women on the moon meets faces of death. Yeah. Except <laughs> there's only like five of them and they go on for it. Like, it's very clear. They just had no money and no ideas and they just wanted a quick cash and sequel. And that was, but they came up. It's like one of the worst films I've ever seen. God, that's crazy. Would you like, still rather watch this than VHS two? I don't like VHS two. Yeah, VHS two is alright. I don't like VHS one, but I would definitely rather watch VHS one. At least VHS one has the radio silence um, at the end short, where in the haunted house that was good. Yeah, that was. Um, what was VHS? What else? Is there anything else good in VHS one? Oh no, there isn't. Because no. Ty West is in it. Or I don't know if he's in it, but he directs a movie in it. Um, I would rather watch House of the Devil than via, than uh, Video Violence. Too. Oh, thank God! 
I'd rather watch a double. I'd rather watch a triple feature <laughs> of House of the Devil, Innkeepers, and Wild at Heart than watch uh, Video Violence Ooh. Two again. And Video Violence Two is only seventy minutes long, so that it's really, really, really bad. Like the first movie was bad, but at least it had some stuff, interesting things going on in it. I, I'm so glad I got that sentence out of you. Now I'm going to edit into everything. Like anytime somebody says, "So Patrick, you want to watch Goodfellas?" No, I would rather watch House of the Devil. Like, I'm just going to manipulate the audio every time now. Now that I have that sentence. So happy. Patrick, would you like to watch House of the Devil? No. No, I'd rather watch, I'd rather watch House, House of the Devil. <laughs> I think we can move on to the director of the episode and forget about House of the Devil for now. Okay. Yeah. Who's the oh, director? But we're going we're gonna to still be fighting uh, Otto Preminger. Oh. I'm not, I'm not even going to wait for you. You're not going to say it with me. I was. Stop pretending. We did you for Paul. You never do. We did for Paul. Yeah, we used, to. we used to. And you know what? The fire's gone. This marriage has become a thing of convenience. And oh, no. We, we used to love getting together and saying directors' names slowly. Um, and, of course, Sensually. the audience loved it. Sensually. Yeah. Um, and now it's gone. I'm not sure if you're building up to an awesome segue because this ties in perfectly with some of the movies we're going to be talking about. I guess so. Hey, Jim. Jim. I'll, I'll introduce Laura if you want. I'll give you a three count if you want to say Otto Preminger. Okay. With me. One, two, three. Otto uh, Preminger. Yeah. How'd that feel? We did Paul Verhoeven together, I'm just saying. I thought we were back in action. Why don't you introduce Laura? Okay. <laughs> oh, this so, episode's got a weird, weird vibe. vibe. <laughs> I don't like this It's one like manic-depressive, manic-depressive. Manic <laughs> yeah, we're all fucking bummed out. We're, like, trying to fucking not be bummed out that goddamn... Philip Seymour Hoffman is dead. Like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? Do you ever fucking understand? Like, that was a guy. He could have fucking acted for the rest, for the of, rest his of his life. life. He could have been fucking 70 and turning out great performances. He he was fucking set. Oh, my God. He, he, did he, he directed Jacko's Boating. Did he ever follow up Jacko's Boating? He was supposed to. He didn't, did he? He was all lined up and ready to go with uh, Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams for his next movie. It's really sad. <sighs> yeah. So not that's to mention that it took me ninety minutes to dig my car out of the driveway yesterday. That was horrible. It's uh, fucking shitty. It's a new month. We gotta be happy. Valentine's Day is coming up. The spirit yeah. of love is in the air. What are you doing for Valentine's Day, Jim? I don't know. Just staying at home and reading Hustler. <laughs> uh, okay. Good. <laughs> Paul Giamatti style. Full of heroin, challenging and controversial. 
about casting a spell same way a mystery can for people who are willing to dive into it it's a it's character study kind of of different people experiencing obsession in which the object of desire fails to live up to that portrait that has been created there's kind of this air of regret that's palpable throughout to where I began to realize that the movie is kind of not focused on plot. It's more about creating that mood that seeps into the viewer, Vertigo style. Um, and I like Preminger's tendency to focus on a given object, like the grandfather clock and obviously the painting. And the idea of people turning into things, which becomes the downfall in a way for the detective, who starts to fall in love with an image rather than the actual person. Um, until, he doesn't have course, a downfall, though. Yeah. He has a happy ending. I guess, yeah. I just, I don't know. The sequence that really works for me, obviously, is when he comes by to um, investigate her apartment, and he looks at the portrait, looks at her diary, um, and drinks the whiskey, falls asleep right by her picture. I just think it's a really amazing sequence. Um, I just, I like the atmosphere of the movie and the overall feeling I get throughout, even if not everything sort of connects or comes together perfectly. I still like this, um, kind of just mood piece that wouldn't be out of place in, you know, the, the world of De Palma or David Lynch kind of, but without necessarily being showy about it. So I, I really like this movie, not... Not in my top three Preminger films, but um, I can see why it, it has an incredible influence for years to come. Matt? Film noir. I, I like Laura, but this movie just seems all over the place for me. I have no idea where it's going. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be concentrating on or what the message is. I don't really have any connection to the Dana Andrews character. He just doesn't really seem to have that much of a personality outside of just playing the little baseball game to annoy people. And I never really buy like his whole falling in love with Laura. It's like it seems like he's investigating her and then all of a sudden it just is, boom, oh, I'm completely in love with her. To the point where when he has, when there is that sequence where he goes to her place, I don't know why, and drinks whiskey and then falls asleep and then she shows up. I started thinking, is this a dream sequence? Like, is this actually happening? That's in the movie? actually the only part of the. That's the only part of the movie to me that I found interesting was the implication that it was a dream, and then when it turned out not to be a dream because it just you know kept going on and on and on, and I was like, oh, I guess this is the rest of the movie. That was an interesting, because I because that the mood of that movie is weird and the tone and the pace of that movie is really weird and that's an intriguing thing to happen um, is for him to fall asleep and then for the rest of the movie to sort of sort of have that moment where he actually does fall in love with a supposed murder victim and though I that reading doesn't really work for me because the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie aren't really markedly different well it's yeah it's like they say in the description that he falls in love with her but I never 
Like, again, never really get that sense or no, never really feel that they explore that. For a movie that's quote-unquote about obsession, it's not that interesting. <laughs> like, the character, like the performances are interesting and the witty things they say to each other are interesting, but no one's lo- – like, no character's logic seems to make any sense at all ever. Like, this movie is so nonsensical from beginning to end that I can't relate to anything. And it's – I mean, it's the same problem I have with a lot of – De Palma movies and a lot of uh, the David Lynch movies I don't like, which is I I can't have any feelings about these characters because they don't feel human to me. They just feel like weird little like they just they just move about and do things and they double cross, triple cross each other and they lie and they see and it doesn't seem to be for any purpose. They just do yeah, it. Yeah, they it's, they feel like little placeholders. The only character who seem the only person who seems to have any character is Clifton Webb is Lidecker. Yeah. And he's, he's the most interesting one, but then they introduce these people like they're kind of out of an Agatha Christie um, thriller where this is her fiance or this is the guy that she's going to marry. And here's her socialite aunt and here's her maid. And it's like, okay, are these supposed to be suspects? Are we supposed to be like, what, what is their real character? It's just, you said it's not about plot, Jim, and I can't agree. Like, to me, this movie is all plot. Like, for a movie that's not about plot, that's pretty much everything that happens in the movie is just, oh, here's this twist. Oh, here it goes. It's not languid. It's not like a slow-paced movie. It's not like there's a lot of scenes where things other than people revealing secret, you know, secret uh, liaisons and motivations. But they're barely even and, doing that either. Like, it's just... It's like one of the most plotty movies I've ever seen, and the plot is garbage. <laughs> like I don't know if the maybe I just I feel like the the, the theme of obsession sort of over, overrides the logic of you know how a plot develops throughout the movie. Maybe it is plot. But if you're gonna okay, so if you're gonna explore obsession, what do you you're it, it's there's a lot of obsession that occurs in the movie, but none of it feels like human beings. <laughs> like, like, it doesn't feel, it just, you don't, I don't even know why everyone is so crazy about, like, she's not a, cra- like, she's she's not a compelling character. She's a very dull character. Like, I, you, I don't understand the obsession. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, there's some, like, there, there are parts of this movie I like. And all the weird sort of side parts of the movie and the fact that the, the love triangle is between two of the gayest <laughs> characters I've ever seen in yeah. a film noir. Um, and, you know, and there's like, there's great dialogue in it and there's, and there is a weird tone, but like, I can't care about any of it. And I feel like that might, and I'm not a, I'm not well-versed in film noir at all. Um, and I wonder if um, like, I wonder if that will be a problem if I want to watch more film noir, if there are more movies that feel like this. Because it, certainly th- films that reference film noir, like um, like uh, you know David Lynch movies or Brian De Palma movies, like, all of my least favorite parts of those movies are like the parts <laughs> that feel like Laura. Um, well, there's nothing in Laura that is like Crispin Glover with cockroaches in his underwear. But you know what I mean? Like, well, there is Clifford Webb sitting in his bathtub typing with his index fingers at his typewriter. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. And there's the moment where Dana Andrews looks down at his dick. Yeah. 
Which I don't get why. I even went so like I was I was kind of like baffled as to why this was considered a great movie and why it had such a great reputation. And I even went to I list I read Roger Ebert's great great movies like write up of it. And even in that, he's sort of like, yeah, it's a weird movie. It doesn't really make much sense. But uh, it's kind of compelling, I guess. And that's it. Like, he was really unenthusiastic about his quote-unquote great movie. I don't, Like, this especially compared to every other Preminger movie I've seen. Like, even movies that feel similar and operate in similar ways, like Fallen Angel. Like, this movie, I do not find that uh, It's great. It's difficult to talk about because it never really feels like there's any one direction that's fleshed out enough that you can really talk about it. Because it's not so much of a mystery, it's not so much of a thriller, it's not so much of a romance, it's not so much of a character piece. It has little whiffs or whatever of each one, but there's not really that much of it that comes together. I watched it when I was very sick, and... uh... (laughs) I, I was really like in this sort oh, of and yeah maybe but <laughs> you know when you're on Nyquil and you're watching something and and it sort of invades you I think like I did get that uh, maybe again you know reading too much into it like how it's this similar to Vertigo you know yeah it's about obsession in a very loose direct way but it's also got that the the male desire to harness the feminine mystique and the painting represents this ideal and i agree that it sort of just comes out of nowhere the detective winds up feeling this kind of uh desire and you know when she comes back all of a sudden he's you know completely enamored and but i don't know it, it's I, th- I think i like just found it interesting because of what it's conveying psychologically Rather than you know the plot making sense or uh, being a compelling mystery, I thought I thought the I, you know I thought Clifton Webb was good and uh, you know a, a very young Vincent Price was good, um, but I I mean it is interesting to sort of subvert your expectations with Laura herself because she really isn't that magnetic and she's not somebody that I can imagine every guy being drawn towards. Do you think that? Do you think that's part of the point of the movie? Is that I wonder people are idealizing her, and then when you finally meet her, she's kind of a boring character. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Even in the flashback, she didn't seem that interesting. Um. Yeah, I don't know. There's like I'm not gonna say that there isn't something intriguing at just how weird it is that this movie seems to be completely nonsensical. Like the fact that it isn't anything. I mean, and. To be honest, I don't like Vertigo either, and that you can go ahead and discount every opinion I've ever had on this podcast. But I remember we saw a double feature, uh, a Hitchcock double feature at the Music Box, and it was Rear Window followed by Vertigo. And Rear Window is my favorite Hitchcock movie. Yeah. No, I didn't see Rear Window with you. Well, I okay, well I did. You came only for Vertigo. Okay, so but at, at any rate, I really I felt the same way about Vertigo. Like I didn't care about. I thought it was really slow and I thought the plot was kind of dumb and I didn't care about the characters and it like, yeah, Vertigo, the uh, greatest film of all time. Apparently I don't, I'm not a fan of, and I got very similar vibes to this. Looking with Vertigo, I think they do get more into the whole obsessiveness. No. Yeah. I think Jimmy Stewart's character 
I think Jimmy Stewart's just a much better actor than Dane Andrews. And also, yeah. he, he certainly is given more of a character than Dane Andrews' kind of blank slate. But yeah, it's it's weird, too, because yeah, we're focusing on Dane Andrews, and yet he's also the investigator, and he's keeping a lot of whatever he knows very close to himself. So it's not like you're really attached to him or know what's going on from his perspective. I don't. I don't think if I went back and rewatched it, though, even if I had a list of the events of the film in front of me so I knew at every point what he actually does reveal later or whatever, I don't think what he does makes any sense. He seems to be like the world's worst detective. Yeah, no, the world's worst detective is George C. Scott in um, – oh, crap. It's a John Huston movie, The List of Adrian Messenger. but. Yeah. Right behind him is Dan Andrews because he doesn't really do anything to solve the case. And he he, just, go, like, he breaks into her along. apartment, gets drunk, and then she shows up, and boom, okay, I've solved the case. And and then yeah, and like he's he's like, oh, and I'm gonna go talk to him next. Can I come along? Murder is yeah. a particular fascination to me. And like he just slowly accumulates people following him around, like yeah. fucking Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Like I don't understand that. Like the one piece of actual detective work he seems to do is arrest the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And, and even then, when he, he's asked about it, he doesn't seem to know why he did it. It's he, like yeah. he finds the murder weapon. He goes, "I'll send the cops to come back for this later." Yeah, why? you why? idiot! <laughs> like, why would you even leave her alone? It's yeah. I don't know. Like, there's just something. There's just a block I have where if things aren't overtly surreal, like this, this is this has a weird mood and has a weird tone, but. The events of the film aren't overtly surreal. I I can't dismiss the fact that it makes no sense, especially when so much of its running time is just watching the plot unfold and this and the plot being nonsensical. Like it's yeah, it's the same thing I felt like with Vertigo. It's not an overtly like surreal film, so that the fact that it had dream logic to me only meant that it was an excuse for it to be dumb. Like it just felt dumb to me. Um, and I know I'm wrong about vertigo. I'm not pretending that I'm the only one who's correct. And I, that vertigo is in fact a bad movie and the emperor has no clothes. I'm sure I just am dumb and or unperceptive or whatever in some way. And I don't like vertigo, but that's definitely the same feeling I had with Laura though. Even more so with Laura, I guess it made me understand more De Palma as far as, like the things that he's referencing and why his movies are so fucking stupid. <laughs> like De Palma's movies are so fucking stupid. The plots are so dumb. <laughs> it's oh man, so not for me. Let's go ahead and just say Laura is not for me. Aww. That's yeah. okay. I, 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 st- I still think something's going on there, but then again, it might have been the Nyquil. <laughs> I uh, I mean, I already talked about watching Star Trek uh, one on mushrooms and that being a very intense personal experience for me. So I understand that. Um, Let's talk about a movie you really love and I did too. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. The God, if you want to talk about a movie that plays with genre and sort of mod like – it's postmodern, but it's from the actual era of melodrama, so you can't even see it's a postmodern melodrama. But it, yeah, it just feels fucking light years ahead of its time. Daisy Kenyon uh, is a movie I knew about only because I had seen a review, a very short review that uh, Mike D'Angelo wrote um, a couple years ago or whatever. And it's one of his favorite movies. 
Yeah, I, I believe it is, yeah. And so when Otto Preminger came up and I was looking at his filmography and I saw that he was the director of Daisy Kenya, I go, oh, that's that movie I've been meaning to see. So I, I checked it out and it was, oh my god. So what's the best – so the, the plot is basically, um, you know, uh, uh, f- <laughs> fuck, what's her name? Joan Crawford? Joan Collins. Collins. It is Joan Collins. Why no, Crawford. That? Crawford, Crawford. Yeah. Jesus. Who's Joan Collins? An uh, author. What? A, a romance novelist, I think. No, isn't she on like some um, some soap opera from the eighties? Are we thinking about Joan Osborne? No. Okay. She's saying, "What if God was one of us?" Joan Crawford <laughs> plays a woman who's old enough to know <laughs> to be Henry Fonda's mother. To no. <laughs> Um, she's, she's, it's a, okay. Daisy Kenyon is a melodrama in which three people are acutely aware of the parts that they are playing in their love triangle and are acutely aware of all of the downfalls and the problems that are going to, that are happening to them. Um, and they even, it's not even that they can't help themselves. They even use that information. They're very, it's. It's very rare to see a complicated romantic movie between three very smart people who have emotional maturity. Because the easiest thing to do in any romantic story is, I have a passion. I'm in love with you. Like, so many movies are just based on the idea of love at first sight. Because you only have, you know, 90 minutes to two hours to tell this story of of a experience that in most humans takes it's a weirdly slow and gradual thing. So most movies is love at first sight. And then, you know, a lot of romantic melodramas are sort of about like their passion and sort of the problems that come from their passion and the fact that they're too blind in their passion to see what's going on. And it's, whereas every character in this movie knows where they stand with every other character. And yet they still, they think they can be it. They think it's, it's real. Cause you know, you think, you uh, have emotional maturity and you think that you know what happened in other relationships that made them not work. And you think, you know, as long as I do this, 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 and this, and, and as, as long, long as I'm, I'm what? what? No, I'm just saying that you have to adapt accordingly to the next person that you're with, not necessarily apply the exact same rules and circumstances from the previous relationship. I mean, obviously it's a learning experience, but since the next person you're with is different than the last person you were with, um, you just have to adapt accordingly. Well, no, right. I'm just saying these are people who have all loved and lost. Um, and so they have that experience. None of these characters are naive in the slightest. So it almost feels postmodern in the way that it's not winking, but it feels like these are characters who know, who have read melodramas and are aware that their situation is a lot like a melodrama. <laughs> like, they they seem like characters who have read a novel like Daisy Kenyon and are like, oh shit, this is just like that, isn't it? Okay, well in that case, I'm going to do this, and it's still it, it makes it it makes it more tragic, and it also makes it much more psychologically interesting and ambiguous. And it's like the like the first film I thought of when I saw this movie was A Separation, um, the uh, Iranian film from 2011, I believe. Yeah, which is a film that is very naturalistic, um, but is about just these people. And there's no good guys in that movie. There's no bad guys. It's just these people who are sort of 
fundamentally incompatible but find themselves it you know tangled in each other right right this person's the victim this person's the victimizer this person's the hero this person's the villain um all of these all of these characters have tremendous flaws and even do hurtful things and but it just comes from a place of understand like you it's so fucking smart this movie it's really hard to describe what um without going point by point but part of the interesting thing the reason i keep using the word melodrama even though is because it is heightened like the dialogue is very sharp and it's very you know florid at times and it's and and like even from the very first scene the first scene feels like the climax of a lesser movie like that's the setup um but like any like several other you know, movies would have this as the climax where it's these two people and they're like i don't know if i can do this anymore and they're saying hurtful things and then they're review and then they're they're you know they're going back and forth between being guarded and being vulnerable and between trying to protect themselves and between the feelings they have for each other meaning that they don't want to only protect themselves because they want to think of the other person and it's i don't know this movie's remarkable i've been talking a long time so good and uh you know you mentioned like the characters almost have this awareness of being in a melodrama i loved it when the killer called up and was like what's your favorite douglas cirque movie that was my favorite part of the whole movie Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I really love this movie, and for all the same reasons that you did. Um, I thought, God, I just put Henry Fonda in almost every Otto Preminger movie for for one. Um, like my most of my experience with him was from Twelve Angry Men, and another actor. That I'm like, God, I need to see more movies with this guy. He's- Henry Fonda in this movie is heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, a little, a little, little touch of vertigo again because you know he plays a man who wants to marry because he's still hung up on his dead wife. You know, a little, just a little, little touch there. But it's like the actual not stupid version of that dynamic. Like it's the actual. Well, this is what actual human beings act like. And there's lines like "I have to fight to stay happy," and there's nothing like a crisis to show what's really inside people. I'm just like fuck. This is a uh, you know this is worthy of a uh, of Pinter and Mamet like that that kind of biting direct um sort of just emotionally revealing dialogue that doesn't feel it's too soap opera attic, you know? I, I it's it's quiet and simple and yet the characters are complex and you really feel for what they're all going through at different times. It's it's a masterpiece. It's one of the great discoveries that we've had on doing this show. Well, I think the comparison to separation is, is really good um, because yeah, I, I really enjoyed Daisy Kenya as well. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why I liked it so much. And then when you said that it, it is just like that where it's these emotions that we're not really used to seeing or people put in this situation that we're not really used to seeing and the reactions to it just seem very genuine and, and, realistic and that's that's really what i enjoyed about this too i liked looking at it from the perspective of joan crawford 
or rather Daisy Kenyon. But I constantly was thinking throughout the entire movie, why is she even bothering with these guys? She just seemed to be like so far beyond them, so much of a better person than them, particularly um, the Dana Andrews character. Do you think so? I think so. I found it interesting that there was a parallel between her and Dana Andrews as far as like, okay, so the thing that makes uh, Henry Fonda the most sad character in the movie and the thing that is the fact that he's an alcoholic and it is just everyone knows he's an alcoholic. He knows he's an alcoholic. They talk about his alcoholism as just like, are you going to like, are you going to take me out next? It's like, depends on if you sober up by that time to take me to a ball game. Like it's fucking cutting, like just the bluntness with which she talks about this way. He's clearly coping with loss and, and, and lot, not just loss of his wife, but loss of purpose, leaving the war and no longer, you know, trying to get back into designing boats and stuff. And well, I get the feeling that she's like guilted into her relationship with him, that she is a caring person and that she's just like trying to save this one some guy. Some of the things she says to him are so hurtful. Like, I feel like she's playing with him almost the same way Dana Andrews plays with her. Um, I feel like they're all. I mean, they're all trying to fill holes in themselves with each other. Um, I mean, and she's trying to fill a hole, like a literal hole in herself as well. But like, they're all like, she, like, I think that's why she keeps coming back to these men because she, because she wants them to be right. Well, no, it's not that because that's the thing. The heart wants what it wants is a really, is a, is a true thing, but it's also, uh, in most films, again, it's a lazy screenwriter excuse to just have someone really be obsessive and love someone because, well, they obsess love someone. That's just what a, what they what happened, and they don't let you in. Whereas this is the heart wants to heal itself, and this and these two men are how she knows how to do that. And she she you know she has the upper hand over uh, Henry Fonda, and she has and Dana Andrews has the upper hand over her and. But yeah, like she can be just as casually cruel as Dana Andrews' character, and she can also be just as touching and sweet as Dana Andrews' character. All these characters have such capacities. Pretty much Henry Fonda is the only one who's too broken to be cruel to but I I thought one of the most striking things was the parallels between uh because first you think first you think of Dana Andrews as just just horrible guy. He's cheating on his wife, he's having an affair with Daisy. He's doing the thing that, you know, Mary Mendure is leading her on about leaving his wife for her. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, and it's getting her more and more crazy. Cause she just can't, you know, deal with that. Like she just can't deal with being strung along again and then being hurt more and more and more every time it doesn't happen. Um, but at the same time, like, uh, you know, he's very, tender with his kids and he seems she does genuinely love her he's not just using her um i don't feel or i mean we're all using each other but to the extent that all <laughs> all love if you want to if you want to break break it down you could one way to look at love would be people using other people to to, to fill holes in themselves you know well yeah it's you get that sense that when she's mistreated by dana andrews you know, she kind of takes it out on Henry Fonda, yeah. where it's kind of like, you know, when your parent kicks you, you kick the cat or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that there is like a, a massive amount of pity on her part. And she seems very closed off from like everyone else in her world. So it's like, these are the only people 
that she really relates to. And it, like when he proposes to her, I just, I, you know, you just cringe at that because you know, it's not going to be a good idea. And maybe it's just because Joan Crawford looks, I mean, she has that kind of look of a sophisticated or at least intelligent woman or somebody who's been around the block a few times that you kind of feel she knows that's not going to end in a good way either. Yeah. There's, there's levels of uh, self-deception and sort of uh, denial that go on, like when she uh, does, she she does marry Henry Fonda, right? She does marry him because Dan Andrews has the divorce papers, right? So and it is just she so wants that to be true. She so wants to believe that she can be what he needs her to be for him, and then that just fulfilling that role would be enough, yeah, to be to fulfill her life. And she, no, she's still caught up on the other guy. And I, I think that's what's interesting too. Is just uh, I've always been fascinated by self-absorbed people as they sort of lurch from one meltdown to the next because what they have isn't enough, you know. And I think that's unfortunate for people who wind up in those situations because you kind of go, your situation, you should really be accepting of it. And obviously, you have something from the past that is still lingering, but move on. And yet. These are people who are almost incapable of doing that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same, again, the, the the wrinkle in all of this throughout the entire movie that makes it so compelling and such on another level is that they are aware of this. They Like every step of the way, they're like, fuck, I'm doing this again. And I'm doing – and then they'll tell the other person I'm doing this is what I'm doing right now. And – but – Thank you. And they go in, but then they'll go into denial and because you can only have that kind of clarity for so long before you just like, you can't emotionally, you know, the human mind cannot deal with the raw emotion of every problem that you have and thinking about it at all times. And they retreat. They retreat to each other. And that push pull is really interesting. And I do agree with you, Nat, as far as viewing. Um, even though there's no heroes and villains and no good guys and bad guys and anything, I do sort of view the film from Daisy's perspective, from being caught in the middle of all this. Um, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Preminger um, as a director I found is he is is how dedicated he is to um, his sort of for the time liberal ideas. Um, he like he feel like this movie. This movie really stopped. And to be fair, we should always, you know, we should always comment when this is true. Preminger is a director who did not always write his own scripts. I don't believe no. he wrote the script for Daisy Kenyon. I don't believe he didn't do advice and consent. He didn't do Anatomy of a Murder. Right. So to say to give him soul, but I think there is a way to say that there are projects that he was attracted to. Certainly. And the, and I think this the way this movie focuses so hard on the mistreatment Dana Andrews has towards his wife. And like, it really allows Dana Andrews, uh, cuckolded wife to sort of have her, have her just heartbreaking moments. Um, and, uh, and allows her to experience those, even though she's not one of the main characters. Yeah. And, Oh, which if I could jump in, that is one of my favorite scenes, or at least like earlier where they're at the store club. And um, there's the one 13-year-old who's, like, all dressed and ready to play the role. And then 
the mother slaps the uh, seven-year-old. And then he comes in and they kind of do play, he and his wife played like the good cop, bad cop kind of role mm-hmm. where he's like, well, you shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done this. And then the second they're in the next room away from the kids, he's like, don't ever slap her again. He just completely changes his entire personality, his entire temperament and just becomes this well, like mincing jackass, evil bastard. Well, he is, yeah. Well, I mean, he is just 50s male. Look, I'm the yeah. man. I'm going, I can tell you what to do. <laughs> You know, like, and that's how he acts with Daisy. And then where, you know, Henry Fonda is sort of passive aggressive um, in sort of the ways that he uh, tries to, you know, uh, subvert Daisy, Daisy's uh, desires and what she and what, you know, she wants. But there it's definitely sort of the plight of being caught in between and the plight of being a woman who at her age had not yet. You know, she hasn't yet been married, so now society has told her that there's something wrong with her and that – I, you know, like his movies are very shockingly modern in their sensibilities, I find. And this – if only – like <laughs> this – I mean ambiguity is a big part of that, but also the kind of uh, issues he's willing to take up. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, he wants to understand everyone's perspective. Like, like mo- okay, so most dramas that are about sort of the McCarthy trial, you know, McCarthy hearings, whether or not, whether or not they're, you know, uh, you know, clouded in metaphor, like the Crucible, or, or the, or that they're more direct, um, you know, like uh, I don't know, like uh, Good Night and Good Luck or something, like. Those movies, the the tack they tend to take is you can't go accusing everyone because you. how do you know? And then all of a sudden you're just ruining people's lives through paranoia. In Advise and Consent, Otto Preminger says, <laughs> yes. so what if he's a communist? Yeah. He's not saying that, oh, this is an innocent man you're proving wrong. And then he goes even further and he says – and he draws a parallel between a persecuted person who was a, once attended communist meetings – um, and, and I mean, the attitude of the film is that isn't a problem that is like, that is someone who is open-minded and that is someone who's willing to explore, well, like I, that's someone who's right thinking is someone who, you know, who the worst guy in advising consent is the one who has the cleanest record Yeah, and is played by a homosexual. Right. But, so that's, that's the other great but that, but, actually, real quick, the, the, there was a line that I wanted to, to use in reference to Daisy Canyon yeah, that sure. kind of sums up everything. It's early on in the film, um, and I forget exactly how it goes, but it's um, like the two politicians are speaking to each other, and he says, oh, it's a Washington lie. Or no, it's he's speaking to his son. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a politician's lie. So he knows that I'm lying to him, and I know that he knows that I know that I'm lying to him. It's like the, the line in winter... Uh, line, yeah, but it's it's everyone being aware of where they stand and yet still trying to deceive each other, which I think is exactly is, what Daisy Kenyon is. That's exactly a really that's a really good point, and that's it. also that's I mean that's also anatomy of a murder, oh, definitely anatomy of a murder. Like both George C. Scott and Jimmy Stewart know what game they're playing. Oh yes, neither of them give a shit whether or not someone's guilty or innocent, and they're just they're just playing a sport at that point. Yeah, um, and. It, 
Sure. But I, I do want to say, like, advising consent, it goes even further. It goes – it because then it draws parallels between, like, a persecuted homosexual in a movie from the 50s. It has a character who kills himself because he's threatened for be, with being exposed for either being a homosexual or for having a homosexual relationship. It's ambiguous, like so much of his films. Um, but it's, like, it's shockingly modern. Um, and it it almost – and in, in the case of advising consent, it almost feels like it's saved by the fact that it is from 1959. Because if that same plot was a movie from the 80s or the 90s, then like half of it would be about this poor, poor gay man being prosecuted, and like that would just stop the movie dead, and it would just be another. It has yeah, it has so many dimensions to it that. That doesn't become a major plot point until like three quarters of it. Whereas it, it, for another film, it'd be it, it gives you it gives you enough to for three to feel for him as a human being, but it also allows it not to dominate the movie. So at the end, you feel good about oh, I saw a movie about how horrible I learned something. You know, like but you really feel for the guy's position too. That when his wife is pleading with him, that what is it you can tell me? I've worked on your campaign. I know how deception is a part of your life and that you have to tell certain lies. And you understand, like, you kind of already know what the nature of that relationship was. But you really feel for him when it's he can't tell his wife. Yeah. Or at least even if he did tell his wife, you know that he knows how it could seriously damage his relationship with somebody he really loves. It's, yeah, it's... It's really remarkable. I mean, and even you could just go to the kind of movies like when he made Advising Consent, he wanted to cast Martin Luther King Jr. as a senator uh, because there was he no black the Hawaiian senator. The senator. <laughs> he wanted but, uh, to push, push the buttons, you know. He, that's and I love that this is a, a film about personal ethics interfering with public perception. You know, it's not so much concerned. It's not like necessarily. Oh, this is a total you know, political courtroom drama, it, it focuses more on public relations. And then, you know, I mean, that that sort of plays a bigger role later down the road with real-life case, like with, you know, what we had with Primary Colors. And I, I, I kind of, I, I love movies about political idealism getting crushed. Well, I mean, certainly, especially for the first half of Advising Consent, the joy of that film is how much that film revels in just the minutia and the mundane details. Yeah. Um, and just all of those phone calls and the way if you see information spreading throughout Washington and the way it plays and it doesn't, it's not super dramatic. Everyone seems to, uh, everyone, you know, the stakes for, for a certain point, the stakes feel fairly low or it's like, well, this is going to be a fun little, fun little game we do trying to get this secretary of state not like yeah. nominated. And so you didn't get the confirmation. Nope. <sighs> yeah. Like, like. Do you? How do you feel about him? I don't know, but I feel like we should back up a president, right? Okay, like that's the that's the emotional and moral commitment they have to it. But that doesn't matter because all the fascination isn't in that they're doing the right thing and they're going to save America and the stakes are so high and couldn't you can't believe that this was almost stopped by some backwards thinking? No, like it's it, that's you know that sort of stuff. Grandstanding, you know, can be really dull. Um, and that's the sort of thing that movie specifically avoids. The- well, it, it's funny because so much of it hinges on just 
what's the personal vendetta of Charles Lawton's character. Yeah. And just that he doesn't even care that much about the confirmation. It's just a personal thing. And then I think that's kind of wonderfully echoed with the senator. They have to punch to wake him up and he's, (laughs) I'm against it. Yeah. No, no, you're for this one. Oh, okay. There's a, okay. So that's also a very, very, very key part of anatomy of a murder. Um, but there's a, there's a weird thing in those two films that I find just, I don't know how to, I don't know how I feel about it even, which is, I don't know where, I don't know whether or not Otto Preminger respects those institutions. Cause it, those, both those movies seem to have a lot of reverence for the way the Senate works and the way that lawyers work. Like that, like Anatomy of a Murder, just there's a lot of moments where it's just like, ah, I'm going to do some good law work. And there's the moment where he's, you know, his friend gives up drinking and like, that's not a, it's not an ironic, sarcastic thing. Like he, there's tremendous affection for those characters and what they go through, but those characters are horrible. Like what they're doing is horrible and they commit to it just on a whim. They commit to it basically because. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's friend just goes, ah, you know, <laughs> you know, I guess you don't have the balls to, I bet you're just afraid you're going to lose. And then that's basically the only reason Jimmy Stewart does what he does for the rest of the film. I, I think of it as like a Sherlock Holmes case where you follow it because it's very interesting to see the procedure of how he works yeah. out something. And I think it also in a sense, advice and consent, although I think that that may be a, a little bit more critical, but I think of anatomy of a murder as not necessarily criticizing, but just fascinated with the inner workings of this. You don't and think I, cause part of what I, I definitely think, is- I, I definitely think there is a little bit of, of judgment on it, but it's also very straightforward in how it's going about it. Um, because be- I, because I feel like part of that movie is like a big part of that movie I mean, and again, this is a film from 1959, so watching it from 2014, there's nothing in the film that wouldn't be in Law & Order SVU, an episode of Law & Order SVU. But part of that film is to provoke the audience and make them uncomfortable. Like, that movie is full of frank talk about things that are not sexy, that are gross, and and just moments – like even the even in the courtroom when they show photos of the murdered body, they're way more graphic than you would ever expect them to be. Um, just the photos of the corpse on the operating table with the blood leaking out of his gunshot wounds and yeah. stuff. Like it's really, I think he's provoking the audience. He wants to make them as uncomfortable as they are uh, entertained. But maybe I've just I've seen the movie so many times that yeah. I've just I I feel that that's like much more clinical. I feel that the movie is extremely clinical in everything it does. Really? Oh yeah. Because I think the. Yeah, I, I would think there it's is. the opposite. I think the movie is 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 the movie is about. I mean, for me, the movie was about the tension between the joy of seeing all these ingenious sort of you know. It's not like a clinical trial; it's a very animated trial. There's lots of crazy little things that happen, and there's characters and. Well, no, that's what, it's dwelling on the minutia of the court, like the drama and the enjoyment of it hinges not on like any any sort of pursuit of justice or anything like that. It's right. Just Jimmy Stewart coming up with, you know, a brilliant idea to argue his case. This is a brilliant point. Or just, like, them researching in the library of trying to find, like, some very small uh, very small point of law 
that will somehow get their guy off or like uh, when Parnell meets the um, meets the army psychologist and he's disappointed that he doesn't have glasses and that he's not really old and that they they do are they're trying like every sort of cheap trick in the book well that's I, like to me it's not if they played by the book and it was just oh they were very smart in the way they did it that'd be one thing but it, like to me it's as much about the performance and the the cheap tricks and the yeah and the theatricality as it is about them being brilliant. Well, I think of that as as pretty damn realistic portrayal of how a case is actually conducted. Right, but in setting up in exploring that through this specific case, um, where he's defending someone who shouldn't be defended. Yeah. Um, well, how what it like? What does that say about our justice system? Like does it does it say that it's it like to me the they, the takeaway from this film is it, the feeling of the film was our justice system is a sport that rich smart men play with each other um, and then there are real lives and there's real tragedy and there's real pain um, that exists in it but those are all just little pawns that get moved around like like the like as entertain as entertaining as it is the moments where like they're just accusing her. Of oh well, she was asking for it. She clearly wasn't raped because what a slut she is, and like, like those moments are so uncomfortable. But they are they still employ the same techniques as all the other um, points that aren't gross and tied into rape culture and stuff like that. And I think I it almost feels similar to me like something like Wolf of Wall Street, where it you're where you are you almost feel you get swept up in the fun and you get swept up in the pageantry and everything. And, but at a certain point you're really supposed to think critically about your own reaction to it. To me, it's a, to me, like a lot of it feels like a kind of a savage critique of, of the justice system, everything. But there are also moments where it, again, it just has such, it seems to have such reverence for the, for the institution and it seems to have reverence for these characters. And there's that like happy ending. Like I really, the most unhappy, happy ending in the history of cinema though. You think so? I I think so because yeah, Parnell has, has quit drinking and Jimmy Stewart won the case, but then they look at the gin bottle. And I think that pretty much confirms that every single bad thing you can imagine about Lieutenant Mannion is true. Right. That he did beat his wife, that the murder was completely premeditated, that he was lying through his teeth, that he did every, every single horrible thing that you could imagine him doing. And then they just hang the shoe on it and laugh. Yeah. So for like the main characters, I, I do think that they kind of frame the story in the sense of it's, it's sort of a redemption for, the character of Jimmy Stewart, that he he was ousted from his role as uh, as district attorney, and he hasn't really had an interesting case. And then he finally gets this interesting case and is able to basically go head to head against a really great um, or like very powerful um, opponent and come out on top. And so it it really sweeps aside the whole notion of justice and that. Like, even when they deliver the verdict, it's with absolutely no fanfare at all. They just casually read it off. But I... But the thing, but the thing about that movie is that that story that you're talking about, about his redemption, about him proving that he's a great lawyer, even though he didn't get reelected, that could have been done with a case that wasn't 
full of such graphic, uncomfortable details of sex and violence. Um, and I think that's like Ed's important, if not the most important thing about this film is that Preminger is rubbing your face in that and the actual human loss and the actual toll of that this that this fun little game uh <laughs> that this fun little game is sort of covering up right like I, this movie like it could have been about a technicality of oh this person got jailed or whatever because it could have been any court case that wasn't a murder that didn't involve rape that didn't involve um the graphic details of spermatozoa <laughs> you know that didn't like that didn't you know it could that didn't have that horrible moment where the bartender is sort of describing uh what she was like when she was playing pinball and he's just uh I like I thought I I thought I hated the mayor of Amityville but <laughs> <laughs> but I, like that is this like horrible like it like that in that moment it's it's almost as if he's just emotionally exactly there again and just leering at her and just and just taking great glee in the fact that he can just you know view her as an as an object and as a dumb slut and all that like like there's so many parts of this movie that if it were only about the entertainment and about the sport of it they don't feel like they would exist um right like <laughs> i well i kind of think so too because every time i see it i'm not really sure whether or not Laura was raped. Yeah. I don't like, I don't mean that in the sense that she deserved it because she was a floozy, but but just, I think of it as being something consensual. And then after the fact, she decided that she wanted her husband to kill, uh, Barney Quill. Oh, really? That's not how I interpreted it. I interpreted it as her husband, Lieutenant Mannion saying, or found out about them having sex, found out about them having sex, beat her. Yeah. Went to go kill him and then said, well, you were raped. And if anyone asks, that's why I killed him. And so, like, the first time I saw it, just just because being a person who the idea of uh, someone claiming to be raped, assuming they're lying, <laughs> is is grotesque to me. Like, I, I just was watching it for most of it with the assumption that that was fact and that was what happened. And then it wasn't only until, like, later in the movie that it sort of began to be put into question. But then the second time... I watched it again. Um, that whole time she's explaining uh, what happened when she's explaining the night, the events of the night in Jimmy Stewart's office. Like that to me almost felt like it was trying to telegraph that she's lying the whole time because there's lines in it. Like I'm going to rape you. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he said it just like that. Yeah. Like, and the way she's describing it, like she's describing it like without any note of trauma, without any note, I mysteriously woke up in the back road. And even he even points out like inaccuracies in her story. Like, wait, wasn't the dog out of the car? And she goes, yeah, I guess he let him back in. Like stuff like that. I thought, Oh, maybe that means that she wasn't raped at all. But then I did not, I didn't got to get to finish it last night. I only, I only got like the first hour and like 15 minutes into the trial. So I think then later on again with the panties and everything, it is again, it's very ambiguous, and it is it, that is a really interesting thing about this movie. Yeah, ambiguity is definitely its strength. And I think, uh, again, Preminger is the type of director who is not going to necessarily lay it all out 
And I like that, you know, the, it's totally up to your interpretation. And you can certainly have that, that sort of cynical viewpoint because God knows our justice system is incredibly flawed. And a case like this, although entertaining um, and, you know, in the context of a movie, felt like, yeah, this happens all the time. You know, this type of manipulation, this type of mind games and, you know, uh, you know, messing with evidence and all that stuff. How many courtroom movies where we see something similar, but this is sort of like the blueprints. This is sort of where it all first. Well, except that the things that people take away from this is the theatricality of law is an exciting thing to watch. Most movies that you say this is the blueprint of. They're really about emotional triumph, and they're about good. Like you think yeah. about a John Cusack oh, yeah. movie, you think about definitely, and it's about uh, it's about the noble lawyer defending the innocent against the evil. Yeah, um, which is not this is not this <laughs> movie, movie at all. In fact, like every time they do employ theatricality, they address it. They're saying like the whole thing: how can a jury disregard what they've already heard? Mm-hmm. They can't. Or right. I had to explode at this moment and. Um, or even the whole thing of him making the fishing lures mm-hmm. for the judge. And George C. Scott is like, yeah, we've been hooked, like the frog. Yeah, It's like deconstructing the judicial system throughout, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, but I, I really don't know how much of it is, is criticizing. And I can totally see that that point, but I just I also think of it as being like, you know, you don't want to see laws and sausages being made, that there's a horrible process to it, but somehow it generally works out in the end. And even if the bad guy got off... Yeah, I wouldn't, say, still, it, I wouldn't say it works out in the end in this one. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, but, but, you know, Quill was kind of an asshole, and uh, well, the wife, like... <laughs> I don't know. And, and, you know, that may be why there is kind of the focus on, well... Jimmy Stewart still still solved his case. But even still, you know, George C. Scott tries even more underhanded tactics. So <laughs> the slightly yeah, I lesser of two. George Scott tried less underhand. Like he was more just well, I mean, he was just operating from the point where he was correct. He was actually like clearly this was a person who was the murderer. Like he, he seemed to be what what underhand tactics did he do? What's that? What underhanded tactics did George C. Scott? Well, they brought in the witness, um, or they brought in the the surprise witness who basically made up his entire story. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, that is true. That's when he gets desperate, and then then finally, yeah, because the first day he's so confident, you know, he's oh, he's just throwing up a smokescreen. He doesn't know what he's getting at. Yeah, Uh, like that's when. But yeah, you're no, you're correct. He does stoop to his level. It is a comedy. But it is, yeah. I my personal feeling is it's one of the nastiest uh, comedy, like black comedies I've ever seen. But the weird thing too is that it it's very faithful to the book, and the book is written um, by a guy who basically was a Jimmy Stewart character. Like that was a real case, a uh, trial that occurred in Michigan in the Upper Peninsula in like the nineteen late nineteen forties, I believe, and. Um, and the guy who wrote it, yeah, it was essentially the uh, the Paul Beagler character. Well, that's maybe why it feels so much like Wolf of Wall Street to me, <laughs> uh, or even you know Goodfellas. People are gonna, not going to write themselves as the villain of their life story. Well, but he's also pretty candid when when he you know 
try something lousy. Like he will call attention to, I just tried this because it was theatrical or, you know, I wanted to treat this guy like a complete right. asshole. And, um, that he makes it pretty clear when he doesn't like someone and something he'll do to, um, just try to try to make them look like an idiot or especially with the whole psychiatrist thing. And, and it's too bad that they took out, um, the cross, his cross examination of, the prosecution psychiatrist, because that's probably the best part of the book. But um, but the whole thing they talk about with uh, with their psychiatrist is that he's young, he doesn't have glasses, his last name is Smith, that they're trying to get somebody who's old, who looks very distinguished, they want somebody with a German name, because all of that lends credibility to the jury, not right. to actually their testimony or anything, but just to the jury. And he's very frank about that, I think, um, certainly in the book, and, and also to a good deal in the movie. But, he, but I mean, Henry Hill is very frank about all the horrible things he does, and Jordan Belfort is very frank about all the horrible things he does. But the difference being that they don't make that extra step and then go, "And I really regret it." <laughs> like, like that's what makes this a good movie is that it isn't about it doesn't end with Jimmy Stewart. So <laughs> my God, what have I become? Oh yeah, you know, no, like, not at all. It there's no self awareness in it, and that I totally buy that the Jimmy Stewart character would go on to write a book about his experience that would feel like this movie does because he, because this movie does not betray an awareness of it. Doesn't, there's no moments where it points directly to the audience and says, look how horrible he's being. Remember when you thought he was just a nice old man who fished and was friendly to the town drunk? Like there's no moment like that. It, it just allows you to draw your own conclusions just by how nasty and um, just grotesque the facts of the trial are and the things that people say about uh, other people in the trial. Like, it's a fucking fascinating movie. Yeah. Like, the assessment of the American legal system alone and how they get to where, you know, they get to a, a verdict. And all the steps they have to take. But I mean, it's, again, it's almost like we can look to our own, you know, murder trials that have been publicized. You know, we never get to know the truth. You know, and we, it's, it's, it's so clouded up. It's, it's so buried under a lot of manipulation and scheming behind the scenes that we'll never even know about. So it's, it's almost like the Errol Morris thing again about truth. Except the difference is in, in a lot of the sort of, films that have that Errol Morris kind of feeling the, and I really, now we probably talked about anatomy of murder more than even Laura, but uh, that's, that's completely fine, fine me. by me. Yeah. Um, the thing about the Errol Morris thing is the idea that no one can ever know the truth because everyone just can only operate on their own sub- subjective experience. But um, in anatomy of a murder, there's a lot of points in this film where the truth could have just happened. Jimmy Stewart could have said, I'm not going to defend you because you're guilty and I'm not going to make you lie. So my advice to you as a lawyer, and here's some free advice, is plead guilty because guess what? You It would take some kind of crazy miracle performance in that courtroom to ever convince a jury that you didn't do what you obviously did. Um, he could have done that. And he, and he almost goes that way until his ego is threatened. Um, so this is a movie about people gleefully covering up the truth as opposed to a film about the inevitability of truth never being found. And the truth is kind of hinted at, at least, with the final shot. 
It is, but it's still ambig. It's still ambiguous enough that you can't say definitively, which is what I love. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if they get into this too much, but um, the Mary Palant character, who is Barney Cole's illegitimate daughter, um, he actually starts up a relationship with her. So, you know, if that's the final cherry on the entire Sunday of I got the murder of your father off scot free, and now I'm gonna fuck you. Yeah, but. That, well, that, that I'm glad they removed that from the film because <laughs> that would have just been that that would have been ghoulish. <laughs> well, and and plus, maybe one more Preminger film that you want to talk about. We should hit that. Do you want to talk about something? Do you want to talk more about Anatomy of a Murder? You were about to say something that. Um, I mean, I could talk forever about it, but I, I oh. do think that. Um, that it is, it is very ambiguous. It's very amoral. Um, I think that you can make a case that it is criticizing. I think you can make a case that it's just looking at it, or that, like you said, you know, in terms of Errol Morris, that that truth is very subjective or conjecture about you know what actually happened with Laura and Barney. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much is that you can constantly ask yourself all these questions. Um, but I also think that there is something. Um, to be said for like the casting of Jimmy Stewart. And I think you alluded to this earlier, you know, if you had anyone else in that role, it never would have worked. If you had like Robert Mitchum or I don't know, anyone who wasn't seen as like the upstanding, most moral, wonderful guy in Hollywood. Well, you steal from the best. I mean, that's what Alfred Hitchcock did with rear window. Rear window is about (laughs) nice old Jimmy Stewart becoming a monster. Like uh, the twist in rear window. Isn't that it turns out the neighbor is the killer or whatever. The, 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 the big, climax of rear window for me is the fact that his neighbor almost like commits suicide. They don't give a shit because they're too engrossed in their little murder mystery game. Um, like, yeah. And it only pays off because it's little old Jimmy Stewart and he's adorable. And especially in this movie, I mean, this movie is so Midwestern. That's the other thing I love about this movie. It's so Michigan. I love it so much. I I don't, I don't know much about Michigan, Jim. Yeah. It's also, it was filmed in Michigan as well. I mean, you're not in the Upper Peninsula, are you? But uh, it is. Uh, I know. Our, I know our uh, friend of the show, Robert Reinecke, uh is a big fan of this film because it's, it's one of the few that takes place in the Upper Peninsula. Well, I think Robert's in Minnesota. Yeah, but Robert also has excellent taste. Yeah, no, certainly. But it's. But I love. I just love how. Even uh, another wrinkle is the just the politeness and the charm and the. And the casual nature that they the the casual like the jailer. All right, all right, buckos. Buckos. Is your sister still cooking for the jail? Oh yeah. Well, I think I'll get lunch elsewhere. Then. Yeah. Everybody's so nice in Michigan. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. That's how it was in Texas. Hmm. Texas people are really friendly. Um, Fallen Angel. Have you guys seen Fallen Angel? I have not seen Fallen Angel. That's a really good one. So that's a noir. I think it's Danny Andrews again. And basically he comes into town with $3 to his name. Uh, No, he comes into town with less than that. He comes into town with $8 in his name because (laughs) he gets stopped at the bus. The bus driver stops him and goes, hey, if you don't keep paying, you're not going to make it to San Francisco. And he goes, well, how much does it cost? He goes, it's $2.25. And he goes, I guess I'm not going to San Francisco. And he leaves. And it's and so like throughout the first part of the movie, you're constantly aware of how much money he has in his wallet, which is crazy. So he pulls out the single solitary dollar from his wallet to pay for a coffee, and he gets ninety five cents change. And it's like, well, now he only has ninety five cents and no place to stay. Um, and basically, he just cons his way into some money, and then he 
starts trying to con his way into winning over the uh, daughter, not the daughter, the younger sister of the town's biggest heiress. And it is another uh, story of sort of an amoral man who's uh, um, sort of doing whatever he can to get ahead. Um, it's almost, it's very similar to the Prowler, Jim, though not, not as dark as the Prowler. Um, <laughs> I don't know many films that are as dark as the Prowler, but uh, it's not as dark, but it is a pretty dark movie. And it's, again, it's Preminger and we didn't get to talk much about his style, um, but Preminger's films are always beautifully shot. Um, all the Preminger films I watched were black and white. I didn't get a chance to watch Skidoo or Exodus or Skidoo looks like crap. Skidoo. Yeah. Yeah. Skidoo does suck. I'm glad that we didn't go with talking with Skidoo. Cause if we talk Laura and Skidoo, that'd be a really sad auto Preminger episode. <laughs> but, um, but his black and white films are just so beautiful. And I mean, advising consent is fucking jaw dropping and the camera work in that movie. And, he knows when to keep the camera still and he knows when to move it around and he knows he's really good with people too. What was the courtroom? What's the other courtroom scene that you're talking about? Like, right. But you, you said like plural, like, like are there multiple, do you mean the Senate in advice and consent? Oh, I guess. Oh, I guess. And also in Daisy Canyon. What is the, Oh yeah, well, that's that didn't necessarily leave an impression on me. If I had to take one thing from Daisy Kenyon, it's that he's great at filming car wrecks. Because <laughs> that is a fucking devastating shot where the camera just keeps pulling back, and she's as she dazed and out of it wanders out of her wrecked car. That reminds me too. We didn't mention this in advice and consent, but he brings back the phone ringing as like an inducer of insanity. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't Preminger like Minnelli, uh like Vincent Minnelli is one of those directors that we just, we covered recently where I just want to watch all of his movies now because he has such a vast filmography and yeah. And how much do you want to ride that little car thing from Advice and Consent? Is that a real thing? I don't know. I really hope Do it is. Do they really have like an underground like tramway yeah. <laughs> in the Capitol building? <laughs> and I think he actually, that's where his cameo is. Oh, I think really? the first time they show it, he's sitting opposite like, uh, uh, I forget whichever two guys, but there's a, there's a bald headed man who looks very German and very auto preminger esque who's sitting there. So he just put that in so we could take a ride on it. But Sorry. And my one word review for Bunny Lake is missing. Fire! <laughs> yes. You know, I never finished Bunny Lake is Missing. I was trying to remember because I would... How much of it did you not finish? Um, I did not finish. I think probably... I probably saw the first 45 minutes. Okay. Because it was on TCM and it was just one of those times where it's like, this is good, but I have to be somewhere. So I had to leave it. So you don't know whether Bunny Lake is missing? Or I have not. no idea whether Bunny Lake is okay. missing. I don't know. All I know is it's probably better than Flight Plan. Yes. <laughs> Wasn't well, there another? Isn't there another one where like there's a couple of movies like that that are just rip off Bunny Lake is missing, where it's like your daughter <laughs> yeah. never existed. Isn't that Changeling too? Um, yeah, and then what's what's the Hitchcock one? Uh, I don't know that one. 
Because that's like the one that Flight Plan is directly based uh, on. Lady on a Train? No. I, don't, I can't remember. But I know it involves it's, a woman on a train, I think. Yeah. The the Lady Vanishes? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I like Bunny Lake is Missing. I love Bunny Lake is Missing. Uh, and that's another thing. Is that a British film? Uh, or is it just a Hollywood film that takes place in Britain? It takes place in Britain. It has British people. Um the studio may very well be British. They were talking about that on the uh, Tarantino uh, commentary for Hot Fuzz. I was listening to that the other day. If you guys, if you could get a chance at that three disc Hot Fuzz, that number one, it's a great fucking special edition. But number two, that Tarantino commentary is amazing because it's just they barely talk about the movie at all. They just <laughs> geek out about all these different British crime films and stuff. <laughs> And they were talking about how, and Tarantino was talking about like how in the sixties and the seven, uh, mostly the sixties, but seventies too, like American movies would just take place in Europe and it wouldn't be a big deal. And nowadays you can't do that. Yeah. Um, I always assumed that Bunny Lake is missing was a British film, but I guess I don't know. Uh, it may well be. The only thing that is so awkward is the zombies appearance in the pub. It's just like <laughs> just zoom in on the TV and have the zombies play for a little bit. Well, I was thinking about the woman with the four assholes. Oh. What are you guys talking about? When Jim referenced zombies, I thought he was making an Edgar Wright joke. Are there <laughs> zombies in? Or the band The Zombies is in Bunny Lake is Missing? Oh. <laughs> Never mind. And then what is the lady with four assholes? Uh, I thought um, I thought Jim was just getting a little creative. Oh. I've completely forgotten. Yeah, the soundtracks by the zombies and that entire Weird. pub scene. Is it is- like the loving spoonful in What's Up, Tiger Lily, where it just randomly <laughs> it just cuts yes. to a performance? <laughs> yes, that's... That's, that's exactly and you love And you guys love this movie? Yeah, I, I think it's really good. I, I love this movie, yeah. And, and a lot of it is also based on the ending, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. spoil it for you. Don't. Don't. No, 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 no. We won't. We won't. I don't know. I still have rented Exodus, so I'm excited to watch that. And yeah, and uh, what's he did a movie with John Wayne and someone else that's like a Navy movie, and I'm well well documented in harm's way. Yes, I'm and well then also I think on Netflix at least here um, they have the River of No Return with Robert Mitchum and Marilyn Monroe. Oh right, which is interesting. <laughs> um, good, good. Good for for doing like kind of a wrap up. I would like to mention one thing before I forget it because sure. my mind works that way. Is that Preminger? He and I was saying this earlier to you, Patrick. Is that he's kind of a proto feminist? Like I really yeah. can't think of that many directors, especially from around the time he was making films, who really made very interesting women characters, very deep and complex women characters. Like especially with Daisy Kenyon, but I also think like um, uh, Anatomy of a Murder. And anatomy of a murder. I was about to. Say, I was about to use that as a point against. Really, really. You don't think Mrs. Mannion is an interesting and complex character? I think she's an interesting character. I think calling her a feminist character is crazy. No, no, no. no feminist in the sense that he, it's he has very empowered or very intelligent women as major characters, and that he gives them. I think that that they they seem a lot more developed than I would expect from. A lot of other women characters from I, that time. I wouldn't even. I don't know. I feel that it's a very like problematic and stock w- female character, the floozy. And I feel it's not. I mean, if I was if I was gonna if I was gonna cite an example of a character like that who's given way more depth than you'd ever expect, I would say Shirley MacLaine in uh, um, Some Game Running. 
like something like that. I feel like she, her portrayal as just endlessly flirting with everyone all the time is, it's kind of. But I think that it's it's too easy to write her off as just a floozy, though, because I think you do get a sense that it is kind of a defense mechanism for her. That this is how she attracts people who can who can kind of keep her out of keep her out of harm, whether it be her husband, whether it be from her husband. I don't I don't buy that necessarily for her. I don't think that she is given the depth that she could have been. Even in the like there was even the moment like when they walk they're walking back to her trailer and everything. I don't like I feel like oh that's a moment where you could have given her and there's a little bit of that, but I think mostly she is kind of just a stock uh oh, she's the loose woman sort of character. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you we can agree you disagree. I think you emphasize you empathize with her. I mean, especially during the more gross moments in the courtroom. But I do think she's not as complex and three dimensional as she could be. I definitely think she does use her sexuality to her advantage, rather than someone who just likes to sleep around. Right, but I, I don't think that they really explore that either way. I, I think someone who uses their sexuality to their advantage is also a. Right, but it's no, but I'm saying that's also a stock character. The woman who I'm not saying I'm not like the femme fatale <laughs> is a pretty standard character archetype, and that is the woman who uses her sexuality to get her way. Like, that's not a progressive character for that time, I don't feel. Well, I mean, feminist in, in, in the sense of it doesn't necessarily have to be like this crusading, morally upstanding, uh, very dominant woman. I think it can be something where it's, it's a very well-developed um, character of a woman and less of a stock character. I, I think that Laura is a bit more complex, uh, or Mrs. Banyan is a bit more complex than you give her credit for. But if we can't agree on that, we can certainly agree that his secretary is a badass. Yeah, no, she's a badass. I, I mean, I'm thinking about it now. It almost, other than Daisy Kenyon, uh, his female characters do seem kind of stock. Like in Fallen Angel, they're, you know, they're either naive victims or they're uh, jaded victims. In uh, in Advise and Consent, there's practically no female characters other than the one than his wife, who's just the sad wife character. I mean, it's he isn't. Like he isn't, he doesn't really do super sexist movies. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say uh, Anatomy of a Murder is especially sexist. It's not. It's not about this woman trying to ruin this man or whatever. It's not. It's not as if you blame her for the lie. I just don't think it's a particularly groundbreaking character. Well, maybe if we watch more films, we'll get in. No, certainly. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to open up that. I mean, he's so liberal in many other ways. I could very well be proven wrong. I. I've only seen the five movies. I saw, yeah, I saw Laura advising consent, an MA of a murder, um, uh, fallen angel. And I've seen, I used to, uh, I used to own man with the golden arm. And that was the film I saw a couple of times on VHS. Oh yeah. Back to that. I forget about man with the golden arm. Um, well, I also, uh, Bonnie Lake is missing. Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. I don't know. I don't know that one. Is that, that's a more interesting character. Yeah. I'd say so. Especially, yeah. Once something's revealed. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that next time cuz I'm I'd love to talk about that one and something else cuz sure. again we've f- discovered another incredible director with a, a wonderful body of work. 
Yep, we and, discovered uh, him. No one else knew how good auto true. furniture was before we did this episode. Yeah. I think Thank we're just late you. to the party, Jim. I think Thank me you, and you were... We, we didn't even mention his uh, role as Mr. Freeze. Wait, what? Oh. He was one of the Mr. Freezes in the Adam West Batman. They had a Mr. Freeze in the Adam West Batman? Yeah. And it was Otto Preminger? He was one of them. Chill out, dudes. <laughs> what? Here, do I... I'm gonna no, get... no, 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 I believe you. I, I believe you. Phone. Can I ask you one question? One. What's Mr. Freeze's real name? John Clute. <laughs> John Clute. And it's all come full circle. Did he have... Thank you, Jim. Did he have... Thank you, Jim. Did he did he have like a Austrian accent? Isn't Preminger Austrian, Hungarian? Uh, I believe Austrian. Yeah. Austrian. He's, he's a Hungarian he have, Austrian. So there's two Austrians who have been Mr. Freeze. This is true. At least two, because there were two mm-hmm. other Mr. Freezes in the Adam West Batman. No, they're probably Austrian. Now that I think about it, or ostriches. They could only be Austrian. Yeah. Um. Hey, Jim. Yes. Who? Let's wrap it up. All right. Calm down. What are your three favorite <laughs> Otto Preminger movies? I'm sorry I get excited. Um, number one... Jesus, he looks like Uncle Fester. Yeah. He looks like Uncle Fester and Darth Vader when his helmet came off. <laughs> oh. <laughs> number except, one? Those are some weird eyebrows. Except he, uh, yeah, except he has Brooke Shields eyebrows. Uh, what, uh, what's your number one, Jim? Daisy Kenyon. Go ahead and do the other two. <laughs> number two, Anatomy of a Murder. And number three, Bunny Lake is missing. Uh, Matt? Or am I doing one, two, three? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Uh, number one, got to be Anatomy of a Murder. Number two, I think it's kind of a tie between Advice and Consent and Daisy Kenyon. And three, Bunny Lake is missing. I'd say one is Daisy Kenyon, number two, Anatomy of a Murder, and number three is Vice and Consent. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Otto Preminger. Who are we covering next week? I actually don't remember. Not next week. Next episode. I don't remember. Double whammy. We're spending the month of February covering the work of one Steven Spielberg. Oh, shit. You're right. We're doing two back-to-back Steven Spielberg episodes. That's going to be fun. Yeah. I already watched Duel. Do you know what we're doing for the two episodes? No, I'll figure it out. I'll ask ask the guys. Returning guests Eric Childress and Colin Suter will be joining us separately for both of those episodes. I'm, I'm worried. Like A lot of those Steven Spielberg movies are really hard to track down. Well, you have the internet. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Huh. We don't normally cover directors as omnipotent and famous as Steven Spielberg. Well, I was thinking you were doing like uh, really early stuff, Sugarland Express and uh, Amblin. No, nah, that won't be a problem. Amblin, yeah, we should cover. We should, we should <laughs> cover, cover an eight Amblin. minute short. <laughs> first, first Steven Spielberg episode. We cover Amblin and the Terminal, <laughs> and an Amazing Stories episode. Yeah. Yeah, we or did the, Amazing um, Stories episode. Or was it Night Gallery with mm-hmm. uh, Eyes? With Joan Crawford. Is that Joan Crawford? Joan Crawford is in one of the Night Galleries he directed. Okay. Tom Bosley is in one as well. I haven't seen any of them. I just know the story. Okay. That he's like this kid. And Joan Crawford's like, who is this kid? And he's like, I'm the kid. 
That's <laughs> roughly that's how the great story television. Went. It's got some memorable quotes in that story. Okay. Hey, this Jim. This is great. Yeah, I had a good time. Uh, where can they find us? They can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. And they can uh, email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Instant Jim at both at Twitter and Letterboxd. And I'm at Patrick O'Pole on Twitter. My film viewing journal, which I've which this entire year I've kept my resolution. I've written about every movie I've seen, uh, including short films that are not on Letterboxd, which is why uh, having my own viewing journal is way better than Letterboxd. Um, I Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot WordPress dot com. Uh, so check that out. Uh, I am more on Letterboxd now. I think I'll probably be moving my reviews over there. At least the ones, the films that are on Letterboxd. I spent so, I spent an, I spent like 45 minutes trying to add the short film version of Whiplash um, onto uh, Letterboxd in order for me to put it in my top 25 of 2013. And it didn't happen. It's still not there. They still only have the feature film version. It's annoying. It's annoying. I don't like... See, that's why... Yeah, let other people have your site. It's no good. Um, of course, uh, Nat, where we can we find you? We actually didn't cite any of your credits. That's because there are so goddamn the many that... It, yeah, just... I'm lousy all over the internet. But, um, I guess Frothy Girls, all one word, girls with a Z, um, is where most of my stuff can be found. Also writing it where the long tail ends, which I haven't posted there in a while in my Orson Welles retrospective, but Othello is coming at some point. And more importantly, Mr. Arcaden is coming after that, which is a much more interesting film. Um, also at the Flickcast, uh, you can find me on Twitter at N-A-T-A-L-M-I-R-A-L-L at twitter.com or whatever the hell the thing is um i think that pretty much covers it also on letterboxd um yeah but um yeah thank you again very much for inviting me always happy to talk some preminger and got to see some really good movies for the first time always nice to be here and rocking it out in chicago wish you were here jim but glad you're enjoying our wonderful state of michigan and i hope the audience is enjoying uh our new audio setup yeah i hope it works there was definitely one point where there was a lag but i made a note of it on the software that's fine yeah me and jim have decided that recording uh him recording me over skype with the with a sometimes laggy connection is not good so we're both recording audio on our own ends on our own what i was singing a song oh what why? I don't know. I'm trying to... What are you doing? It's not even late. It's not like... You're not even like sleep deprived. I'm getting there. Jesus. He is now ahead. What? He's now ahead. Yeah, so I'm way more tired than you. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. In Michigan, 8-15. The Super Bowl's already over for him. Yeah, certainly. Fuck. Oh, well. <sighs> I just, All right. I, I can't wait to watch the next episode of True Detective. Oh, God. That's Ooh, true. yeah. Patrick, get on that. Yeah, I'll get on that. I believe you. I don't have a pa- I don't have my password to HBO Go anymore. Oh, okay. So I don't. Uh, that's fine. I like they're like I don't have enough stuff to watch. I don't television. I always feel guilty watching television because I don't write about television on my blog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has boobies. 
it's HBO. That's like the worst thing about HBO is that everything they do has to have goddamn boobies in it. How is that a worst thing? Because it's so gratuitous and dumb. Like at every moment, like ev- like do we really when like I was watching it when we we were sort of both me and Jim were rewatching The Sopranos. I was just struck by how every time they go back to the big, they have to have that establishing shot with all the strippers, and it's yeah, it's very irritating. I think it's I think it I think it makes. I, if I'm going to be honest, I know you. I know you're. I know you're not being honest. I know you're just joking. But if I'm going to be honest. Anything that feels very perfunctory uh, bums me out. And uh, and like anything that a TV show where it's like, well, it's on this channel. So the way we do things is there has to be some nudity at some point during the show because if someone's flipping, we want them to stop on HBO. Like <laughs> it just it's it's gross. And if every if if now all anyone can talk about is TV, it's as good as film, and that, then we should be beyond just having perfunctory boobs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's any, if it's any uh, consolation, the boobies in True Detective are somewhat within context. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you can have contextual boobies. I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least movies that are that are appropriate to the plot. Ta- Jim, what are your top three uh, contextual '80s boobies? We talked about that in the bonus episode. Yeah, I know. No, it's fine. You we don't like it. things that are perfunctory, and I don't like things. I don't like people that are persnickety. So. <laughs> Good one, Jim. Yep. Oh man, we are in a bad mood. Philip Seymour Hoffman just died. Leave us alone. I'm, yeah. I'm, I've been I've been I've been very negative towards you all episode, Jim, and it's just because it's such a fucking bummer. I know this, this day fucking sucks. If only we could so be there excited. in person, we could hug each other through the yeah, whole episode. It would have been so much better. Oh, I was so excited because I auto premature. I was so excited to discover him as director and. He made so many great films, and and, that and I was like, "Hey, you know, fuck Super Bowl. I'm going to report a podcast." Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, I found myself too embarrassed to say that to my coworkers, though. Oh. They go, "Oh, you're going to watch the game?" I go, "No, I got other plans." <laughs> that's, that's all I could bring myself to say, because I do not ever want to have the conversation. Hey, where I work, they think podcasts are cool. I know, Jim. Stop fucking rubbing it in my face. It's not the last time you said that. Or not the first time you said that. You know what I mean? This probably isn't the last time either. I hope not. So, enjoy your week, everybody. And we'll see you for the Steven Spielberg episode very soon. Goodbye. Shut up! Bye. Bye. <laughs> shut the fuck! You're all right to take Shut up! Will you shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Shut up! Now! Are you threatening me, Dick? Are you? You go fuck yourself! I'd rather watch Downs of the Devil. Wild wild at heart. Wild at heart. I'd rather. (laughs) Now, now somehow we changed it. Ted Levine. <laughs> I'd rather watch Wild at Heart. <laughs> the human being would be pulled into infinite spaghetti. And that is the ultimate force. <laughs> Here's a joke I once heard Planck's constant is neither. Wow, that's really good. Uh, I just got it from a critic episode. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs>